the disposable cup changed the world. Like <laughs> saved so many lives. You're the first person I've this. ever heard say that, but it makes so much sense. It's real shit, especially when you see the pictures and you see what these people, I mean, people, they had a community cup at a hospital. Yeah. You know, I mean, doctors are drinking out of this and then the patients are drinking. It's like, it's insanity. They had no concept. And then you got a guy like Q Moore who comes along and he's like, fucking these people are gross. And he's like, you know what? You got to educate these fools on how gross they are. And so that's what he did. And like the Dixie cup company is responsible for a lot of the, you want to talk about propaganda. That's where a lot of the um, education came from about sanitation was him selling his cups to people. And the propaganda was to explain why you need disposable cups, but those disposable cups saved so many people that later in 1960, I, I want to say it's 65, um, he founded the Population Crisis Committee and like did this whole, like he had to, because he saved too many people. And the moral question comes down to, if you save 10 people and you decide that, you know what, none of these people are going to have a good life, but they're dependent on you, right? Like where's the, you know, if you can, if you can just, say five of them instead they would have twice as good of a life that's where these guys were coming from Let's just take it from here, Jason. So it's it's sure I'm learning your your name, your last name for the first time. Jason Bradley, I see on on your Zoom name. Um, so for for the audience here, Jason and I got to know each other over Twitter. Jason goes by uh, the, the Nick. Everybody shook uh, where he is this little you can see the rabbit in the background behind him kind of goes by this moniker of shaky. Uh, who goes down uh, these rabbit holes of investigating um, these various things in the historical record, which is, uh, and I, I got, I think that Jason is one of the most underfollowed people I know, you know, like Alex last week, we taught, he has like a huge number of followers and whatnot and does a huge amount of work. And Jason does just as much work on some. Oh, no. <laughs> you don't no, think he does? The, you no, know, no. Not as much not as even, him? <laughs> no, not even the same league. I've been working on the same article for like five months. He's like 19 articles deep. And like all of his work is, I don't know. He's got an extra gear that I don't have. I don't. I'm I'm. I'm in awe and admiration of that man. He well, just, I'm going to puff you up a bit anyway, because I think you're severely underfollowed here. And uh, his... That's it. Yeah, your work fills a gap uh, it, that even some of the most earnest thinkers and thorough thinkers that I know of when trying to figure out causation for the mo modern moment have really missed. So with that said, I wanted to start with asking you, Jason, could you describe for everybody um, what kind of research you do and how you got into it? Sure. Um, most of what I do is like just... Uh... I guess policy examination. I, I, you know, I come from kind of a corporate background a little bit before COVID. I was writing manuals, you know, churning these things out. And so I kind of have an eye for them. And 
during the whole process of COVID, I think we all kind of had a lot of questions. So I just went to the top and started reading my way backwards. And like, what kind of questions um, did you have? You know, there was something going on that just didn't, nothing seemed right. Like the entire time, nothing seemed right. Everything you're being told is a, and it's like, there's all of these, it's like all of this obvious pageantry. And anytime someone's making you look at their hand, you got to check what's going on. You know, what are they really up to? And so that's kind of where I was coming from. It was just kind of a, wanting to under, actually understand what they're doing. And in doing that, it was, it was absurdly difficult. Like one needs almost a decoder ring to understand what any of this stuff means because everything is, 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 is like uh, back connected. So they'll say like in, in the light of this document or um, like a whole section will be predicated on a single meeting that happened in 1992. And if you don't know what happened in that meeting, then you don't understand what they're actually saying in this paragraph. They're just saying uh, in 1992, there was a precedent set and that's all, that's all the information you get. So then I would have to go back to 1990, you know, whatever, and then read that one. And then it was just a string of following the thread all the way back until I could actually understand what the first fucking paragraph meant. (laughs) And what kind of documents were you starting with you? And you say I started diving into these documents. Um, I think, you know, the weird thing that popped up on my radar first, I think that like really kind of shook me up was, uh, the agenda uh, or the event 201 yeah it's like unreal like so what what is event 201 well that's it was basically assimilation that you know every every year um the world health apparatus gathers together and they run these faux epidemics and these these simulations and this one was just almost identical to what was actually happening these pan- there are these pandemic was- war games, right? Kind of war gaming. Yeah, they're they're going yeah. through the process to find kinks in their system. I mean, it's a, it's a valuable process, you know. You should be doing that kind of stuff. But that was just that one event two hundred one was hitting really weird. And actually, one of one of the threads with that was I was trying to take the defensive of, like I'm always trying to play devil's advocate a little bit, and and I was trying to explain to my friend that they're they're completely blowing bill gates out of proportion like you really don't understand bill gates you're saying all of this stuff about how evil and all this stuff and then finally i just started kind of following the thread and i was like oh wow okay well maybe i am completely naive and i just kind of started questioning myself a little bit more and allowing myself to be wrong and then i kind of found out that the entire world that i understood uh, didn't actually operate as i understood it and i since then have made it my prerogative to actually figure out how it works. Gotcha. So let's, let's take that. I think that's a reasonably good uh, uh, overarching view of your, you know, the process that you're going through and kind of the, the research that you're doing. Um, So let's fast forward a bit from like how you started to what's sort of your general thesis, like after all this work that you've done and for those, uh, there'll there'll be links in, in, in the YouTube and uh, you know, the RSS, wherever the feeds, wherever you're listening to this from to Jason's um, videos, which are, I I actually, I've listened to all of them two or three times now. 
Uh, Thanks, man. At at 1.5 speed yesterday and today, but uh, (laughs) just to refresh myself, um, but they're they're fascinating. And I think his, um, the, the sculpting society series is kind of the, the, the main core of the work that you've done. Um, what, what is kind of your, how would you describe your general thesis that you've come out of your research, um, after producing those, uh, videos and what uh, of this thesis, um, in this overall worldview that you've developed that you think most people are kind of unaware of, unaware of, or underinformed on? Um, you know, it's hard to distill the scale of what we're looking at into like a single, like, I can't, like, it's hard to apply. I would say most, most of the points that I'm trying to make are, um, people are just as wrong as I was. And most of what I, most of what I'm showing people is stuff that blew my mind. You know, I'm, I'm basically just like, Oh my God, guys, I started digging and look at all this crazy stuff I found and trying to figure out how I can show people this stuff that I found is is really, I mean, there's no, I wouldn't say there's even like an overarching purpose beyond just um, feeling like everyone who's talking is getting it wrong. And if they could just see what I see, they would understand that they're off just a little bit. You know, I don't. I, I don't. So, know what are some major themes on how people are getting what wrong? So, like, like as an example, like uh, one thing that's really been frustrating is the the overpopulation conversation. Mm-hmm. That's probably, especially over the last several months, that's been the main part of my research. Uh, like, that's that's where I live. I just live in the overpopulation world, and I've been there for going on almost two years mm-hmm. but like really deeply in the last six, six seven months as i've been really just trying to pin everything down and and figure out who's right and who's wrong and what i'm noticing to my own shock is that both sides are equally as wrong they, they mm-hmm. have no idea what they're talking about there's almost it's you know i don't want to like there are a million subjects I know nothing about. You know, I am the worst person to ask for advice on your car. I have no idea, like trying to set up a Zoom. I'm I'm like your grandma, you know, I cannot yeah. do certain things. But if there's one thing I know backwards and forwards, it's this policy. And these people that are talking have no idea. They've never read the policies. They don't, they have no concept of what they're actually saying. And yet they have these huge platforms and they're getting it all wrong to an extent where we can't, fix it if you're it's like a doctor diagnosing something with all of this confidence and it's the complete wrong sickness you know you're treating all of those symptoms it's i don't know so you'd mentioned that there's two sides could you uh, and that each side is getting things wrong how would you characterize each side and what they're getting wrong so we've got like so you've got the overpopulation people so that's a huge contingent i mean the overpopulation is 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 vast and then you have the other side which is going to be the population collapse people right there seems to be very little moderate ground in between people either believe oh my gosh there's you know civilization is doomed if we don't act now or they believe oh my gosh civilization is doomed if we don't act now and I, i i feel like like I'm working on a, on a cartoon right now where I'm trying to describe everything and, and just trying to convince. It's like one side's trying to convince everyone 
that because they have thumbs, they're going to shove them into their eyeballs. And the reasoning doesn't add up. It's like, yeah, see, it fits right into your eyeball. And, and then, you know, it, it's, that's not with thumbs. And then the other side saying, no, we have thumbs. Thumbs are a great thing. You can open all these doors. We can do anything. There's no way a thumb can ever fit in your eyeball. And it's like, wait, that's not the argument. Neither one of those is correct. Like, yes, a thumb can fit in your eyeball, but are we going to shove it in our eyeball? Probably not. So it's, it's, it's got this side talking about wanting to cut the thumbs off. And it's got this side worshiping the thumb, you know, and mm -hmm. the thumb in this scenario, say like oil or petroleum, fossil fuels, anything like that. There's no room for just people saying like, yes, we care about the environment. How, how are we going to do this thoughtfully and strategically and move forward and actually address the issues? It's just become a, a series of factions against one another competing. And, and, and again, both sides are obviously wrong. It's, you know, thumbs are a great thing. They're very useful. They're not, they don't make us gods. You know, at the same time, we're not so dumb that we're going to just shove them through our eyeballs. I, I, I don't know if it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to still in like a, in a processing phase. It's like it's really difficult to describe because like I'm still getting it out, if mm -hmm. that makes any sense. Like I'm still fleshing out the ideas. and I'm still figuring out things, um, you know, learning as I go. And I, I don't think that as I go. I just feel continually disappointed with, with what's out there and like what I'm actually seeing. And yeah, it's, it's isolating. And I, and I don't know how to describe it very well. So that's why I started making videos. Gotcha. So the video overpopulation in particular, you know, that, that was a major theme in, in, in some of your videos. And I think, sure. and I, you know, when I was, I mean, I, I remember the first time I saw the population curve starting, you know, with that major inflection point starting in about 1800s, where, you know, it, it looked like the it looks like the, the world population is just you know going um, parabolic. And that, you know, that certainly raises an eyebrow. And I and, you know, the, the idea and the concept that there's too many people on the planet and that people are destroying the earth was something that I grew up with. Right. You know, sure. Um, so it could, could you help bring us through like, uh, how that line of thinking really developed and became imprinted in the, in, in, um, the popular mind is yeah. I'm, I, I'm trying to look at myself like a tour guide or, yeah, yeah. um, if, if anything like a, like a guide of any sort, you know, and, and yeah. as a responsible guide, my number one agenda is not giving you bad directions. Right. Just, you know, it's my responsibility to get you to the conclusion, but at the same time, not like you might read the same stuff that I read and come away with it with a different interpretation. Mm -hmm. And when you share that with me, it changes my views. So that's why I want to just show you the things that I've read. I don't want to necessarily tell you what's implied by them and all this stuff. I'm more of a, okay, there's a rock over there. Turn left. Okay. You see what you see? Like, that's, what is that to you? You know, and what is well, it? You know, and, and, what are the, 
in you know because i think we we both dabble in what some people would consider like the conspiracy space right when it's sure like, you know I, we don't have to dive deep into the the absurdity of that but it's like one of the things that i've all i was always impressed with with your demeanor and and the takes that you take is that you are not trying to claim some kind of grand um uh discovery of you know i now know the the, the secrets of the world and how everything is run and organized even though what you do is at least from a clerical point of view uh, is to discover a lot of the the artifacts that have been created along the way that you are pointing people to is I think what you're getting at there. Um, yeah, it's definitely an archaeological dig. Is uh, that's one way I think about it in my own head a lot. Like when I'm doing this stuff, like try not to assume purpose, try to just tag it, understand what it is later. You know, we're trying to get the whole yes. picture here. You know, and, and, and then I come back to it after I have context. And you don't assume nefarious intent or at least where people would think one might assume nefarious intent. You are, a you are significantly more empathetic to the people who are making the positions given the uh, where they came from and what they're observing. Well, you know, like I said, man, I feel like I'm a guy and I learned. Like, I didn't find all this, that this, you know, I'm not, I'm kind of an explorer, but most of my exploring is done through the lives of these people. Mm -hmm. And you can't honestly look through the, through the lives of these people and say that they're just bad people. They're not. Like, I started off when I first read Julian Huxley, I started off with a very like, uh-huh, what's this? Ooh, what's this guy going to say next? Oh, man. And then, you know, after I finished his memories, it was like, I understood him. You know, yeah. and you can't understand someone and then still think they're just some evil person. They're not. And, and it, also that's counterintuitive to actually under assessing the situation. If you're starting with the pretext that the, the people that are opposing you are evil, you're never going to actually understand what it is they want, what they're driving at. You're never really going to hear them. And I think if anything, I just listen to both sides. I just I truly listen because you know, utilitarians and Christians both have a different moral view on what mm -hmm. is right. Who the hell am I to say who's right or who's wrong? Mm. What I make it my task to do is understand what they're actually saying. Jul Julius Huxley. Um, Julian. Julian Huxley. Um, why is he so important in, in your research from what you found? I think Julian's probably one of the most important humans that lived in the 20th century period like um he he was a he was a synthesizer you know he 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 was able to take the entire the entire world around him and put everyone else's ideas into an order that his name allowed him the authority to implement like he changed the entire world and he just gets written off as aldous's brother <laughs> it's <laughs> And, and who is his brother? Aldous Huxley, who wrote uh, Brave New World, is, is his younger brother. Um, they both had similar backgrounds, went to the same schools, grew up, you know, like their, their grandfather was basically like one of the founding fathers of biology. Okay. Um, uh, when, like, just to put it in perspective, when Julian was born, he was born into a world where his his grandfather was the president of the Royal Society, 
uh, one of the most decorated and recognized scientists, period, just period, not, not just of his era, of any era. You know, the name Huxley, he was born into a, an amazing, an amazing legacy. And his father, Leonard, always just drove it into his head that you have to live up to this legacy. And his brother Aldous didn't really have that as much. So hmm. Julian went more towards the path of science, even though he wanted to be a writer. And Aldous went towards his mother's side of the family who had come from a, a lineage of writers. You know, this is like Edwardian into Victorian um, England. You know, I, I, we have to remember like the context of their world was like you, you kind of are what your father was mm. a little bit, you know, and if you're it, growing up in the shadow of such an amazing figure like that, um, nothing he ever did felt like it added up. But at the same time, he wrote the modern synthesis, which was, you know, in the 1940s, there was evolution was everywhere. Like people were talking about, uh, you, you know, you take it all the way back to, to his grandfather, T.H., he coined the term Darwinism. You know, we use the oh. term Darwinism. That's not what Darwin called it. That's what T.H. <laughs> Huxley called it. You huh. know, he also coined the term agnosticism. He, they, they developed an entire, like, he was the, the, the founder of the, the, one of the first scientific clubs that just meet, like, like private planning clubs. Like, they, he developed the entire, helped develop the entire system by which everyone communicated their not only ethical values but scientific thought and by the time julian came into his primacy um you know he was the head of like six international organizations you know having a, a huxley at the helm of your organization was a big deal that's like that's a gold standard right there and julian never disgraced his name he might not have lived up to you know, the giant that his grandfather was in a lot of ways in his own mind, but he also never did any disgrace to his family. None of his work was ever just thrown out. Um, and in that capacity, he was able to act as the great conciliator. So there was, you know, at the time you have uh, Lysenkoism taking on, on the, in the Eastern block. And what is um, Lysenkoism? So they developed, it all comes back to Malthus. Um, okay. And what is Malthus? Uh, exactly. <laughs> now, these conversations, it's best to always just start these conversations in the 1800s. Um, yeah. It's the only way Let's to go actually back. approach them and, and understand what's happening. So you've got Darwin and Wallace um, who founded natural selection, you know, together through their exploration into the ideas, the concept of evolution. Um, which had previously, you know, pre-existed them, they, through Malthus, under gained the understanding of environmental pressures. And as population being a key driver or a key pressure, um, what Malthus basically observed is that in the natural world, uh, there are checks and balances and there are pressures that force change. And Darwin and Wallace basically explored that vein of thought until natural selection was born. Natural selection was then basically absorbed as the, the, the explanation, the overarching explanation to a process that 
is happening with or without God, you know, whether there's a God or there's not or anything. And so the church challenged that. T.H. Huxley stood the challenge of the Anglican church and just destroyed, just eviscerated them and gained the name, you know, Darwin's bulldog. Mm. Yeah. At the time, their medicine and their, their thoughts, all the things that we still use the same words for were very different. Like, like, like Darwin's original concept of natural selection doesn't hold up. Like if you go and you actually pressure test this in our current understanding of how the world works, it doesn't really shape up. So there was a series of, from Darwin until Huxley, of different people having different ideas on evolution and what Darwin really meant and what, what's actually causing these pressures. Are there even natural checks? Um, well, during that time, so you've got probably about the 1840s into maybe 1890s, you've got all of these thoughts processing um, into basically two rival camps. The main two rival camps were nature is competitive and the other one is no nature is not competitive. Uh, the nature is not competitive camp was where Lysenko staked his flag. So okay. Lysenkoism is basically the foundation of anti-Malthusianism. It's saying that no, all of that is just conjecture. There the world is the way we make it because we make it the way it is, you know, and, and a large, large part of that is because at the time, the Bolshevik argument for socialism was highly contingent on the world being the way it is because we made it this way so we can unmake it. You know, they needed that to be the, true. The malleability of people being able to form people to, you know, just uh, no, not even a people, no. you know, more dangerously of life, like, like, so at the time, Russia was one of the leading, like there was, science was a great competition between countries. Uh, war was almost like a way that countries got to try out their new science on each other once in a while. You know, it sounds messed up, but it, it's real. You know, the peasantry's turning into rabble. They would kind of send them up. All right, try this new thing out. And then they would actually hold competitions to try to lure scientists in to make the next thing. Well, Germany invested more than anybody, and Germany was crushing it at this time period. Their education system was state-of-the-art. Like, the, the world is built on German education and German understanding. Uh, the entire world, like the entire Western world as we know it, comes from... It was like Prussia, Prussia into Germany, right? Like the, exactly. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm using the common... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm well, nitpicking. Russia, thank you. I appreciate the accuracy check. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the Russia was never competing with that, but they, no one was, you know, right. but they were trying and, uh, especially going into that era, you know, those, that 1890s era, that's when Pavlov really emerged and yeah. Pavlov is where, you know, he was super into the competitive nature. Like, I mean, he, for his the first gift Pavlov bought his, his wife, like the, his, his life partner was Herbert Spencer's book where they, he outlines survival of the fittest, you know, social science was the most, it was his whole life. Like, so there was the separation between ideologies that was mm -hmm. being pretty deeply rooted, but the science, science was advancing at a rapid pace. Russia was at that time, the Pavlovian laboratories were world-class. Every, 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 
just like education is founded on German, almost every laboratory system in, in existence at least takes some aspects from Pavlov. Like hmm. Pavlov is just that influential, that meticulous. He, he really changed the way experimentation. And Pavlov was, that was Lenin, right? Like was, was pre-Lenin. Lenin into, yeah, like the end of Pavlov's life back when, you know, he had already won his prizes and, had, you know, he never okay. had like F you money, but he was definitely like told Lenin F you quite a few times, which nobody got to do and live. <laughs> but he did that and then somehow still managed to have Lenin fund world class laboratories and world class universities. So Pavlov was helping to build this this new Soviet scientific utopia. Which all of the scientists, you know, in the nineteen after after the Bolshevik re revolution, everyone went there. You and know, everyone. Is, and ju just to, for the audience's sake, this is Pavlov of the Pavlov's dogs, you yeah. know, reference and, uh, and the founder of behaviorism, essentially. Behavior, like yeah, what, thank we, you. what we call behaviorism is Pavlov, right? And you know, like I said, like that's and that's just such a small part of what he did. Like that is like the everybody knows him. It's and that's another funny thing about history. Everyone knows him for the dog and the bell, but he never even used a bell, you know. <laughs> bell, but that's an important detail because bells were too erratic. He used a metronome because a metronome is precise, and it was that level of precision and rigor that he brought to science and changed everything. And so this is and this is because I just want to mix in here. Like this is where you you have Lenin and then you have Stalin um, are basing their interpretation of the world off of these learnings that they can mold men into the 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 society that they want to create, which is kind of part of the basis of communism that you you can you I, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but that they can carve men into the image that they want to be. Which yeah, I. I think I think one of Lenin's quotes in that regard, like one of the famous ones that always gets said, was actually a quote to Pavlov, and it was like yes. more of a directive. Than, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's where we're at in the timeline. <laughs> and, and then and then you have I mean, I'm sorry, go going no, off a little please, bit. These are the things please. that it reminds me of. Um, he wrote "Crime and Punishment," uh, top, uh, uh, not Tolstoy, um, uh, uh, and he had. Yeah, the, right on the tip of my tongue too. Um, I, I, I'm looking at it on my bookcase right over there. Dostoevsky. There you um, go. Thank you. And you know, he is one of my favorite quotes of all time. Was like that you you can't play a man. I'm paraphrasing. Obviously, you you know, a man will do anything to prove that he cannot be played like a piano key. Um, that he will burn down the world around him just to demonstrate that he is not played like that. You know, which I, which those um, writings from Dostoevsky came from his observations of how people operated in that period, which yeah. it's like an amazing, I, I, yeah, anyway. So what, so what we've talked about so far is that we have Malthusianism, this this entire intellectual period where you have the Malthusian idea that we're going to have this population boom, but we're going to lose, not going to have enough resources in order to support this uh, these these people. So that's a slight misunderstanding. Okay. So and just to just to correct that because that's a yeah. common thing. Like uh, what Malthusian did, Malthus. You know, like Malthusianism developed from the observations yes. of a man. 
And all his observations were essentially was that overpopulation has a role in causality yeah. and the chain of causality. And in trying to, at, at, in the era he was in the era he was living, uh, it was right at the end phase of um, what is it called the Spring of Nations or the the revo- It's like a seventy year, hundred year period of just revolutions and nations springing up everywhere. And they're trying to figure out how to make the lives of the poor better. And more than that, answer the question, why are there poor people? Yeah. And he basically just proposed that perhaps from these environmental pressures that he had observed, um, that's what causes poverty. So that it's not mm. that there's these ideological issues that are really driving poverty. And if we change things, poverty will disappear. He's basically saying, like, if we make things so good that eventually um, people will breed themselves out of a good situation and that's and then, what he, he he basically said that that's what the workers were doing it's because funny it reminds me of this, themselves out of the situation it reminds me of this quote in the bible where jesus says something to the effect of like the poor will always be with you like stating that yeah. no matter what you do there will be poor people it, it's it's a and that's one of that's the one thing that on the other side, because there are there are very like some of the founding socialists, like Fabianism is almost entirely composed of Malthusians, you know, but there's yeah. also, you know, Marxism in order for Marx's dogma to work. Malthus has to be wrong. Yes. There's no there's no other way about it. He just has to be wrong. So yeah. we can't tell you why he's wrong. We can't tell you why this observation works for ants and doesn't work for us, yes. even though natural selection kind of shows that, yeah, it kind of works on everything. You know, that's the Jesus, base observation. Jesus has to be wrong, too. A lot, you know, a lot has to be wrong. <laughs> anyone with eyes has to be completely wrong for that, for a lot of Marx's dogma to work. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, is like at, at this time, it's like, the only solutions he proposed were within the threshold of acknowledging that there's just, there's, there's these checks. That's what he called yeah. them. They're just, they're checks. It, they're, they're inevitable right. almost is what he was saying. So he was, he wasn't proposing man interject. It, he didn't, you know, ha- it, what he was basically saying is that you have to self-select to, if I want to have more, I have to have less kids. Would, you know? would a fair would a fair way of describing what's going on is Malthus is is making this observation about how these systems sort of operate, but and while simultaneous to this, you have these you know uh, in physics especially these kind of like pre- precise in chemistry these precise sciences where you're able to make very concrete absolute predictions, and that level of confidence starts people start wanting to to apply it to models like population and, you know, much more complex in many ways systems. Well, you know, it, it's important to remember that he was an economist, you know, this is a number of things for him. Yeah. No yeah. kidding. Okay. Yeah. So this, it's not like he was like, this is numbers, you know? Yeah. It's, and, and he was all of the controversy comes after Malthus. Like yeah. Malthus is, he lived kind of a controversial life because, you know, people were, were, were writing very high on Adam Smith. And, and according to Adam Smith, population growth is always a good thing. Right. And, you know, that's kind of correct 
if you're accounting for war as an inevitable part of life. What Malthus and the people at the time were trying to figure oh, out is how to not have war. You know, if how do you have a nation that has this always multiplying mass and you're not killing them off and you're not sending them to test your weapons on every every couple of decades? You know, they were tired of it. Like I said, they're coming out of almost 100 years of just solid war. Wow. Uh, I, think, I think the year that Marx published was like the final year of, of just endless. I mean, something like over, I, I don't, I'm going to quote a number, but it'd be wrong, but oh, well over like 70, 100, something like that revolutions took place in like a blip. So how do we, how can you help? Let's, let's try and bridge this story from the, the economist observations of Malthus into the engineered outcomes of the early 1900s yeah so you you bring it into like eugenics and population control and trying to and what they 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 go from observation to trying to achieve particular outcomes quite uh quickly well and that's where that's where people get really sloppy with malthus i I feel like malthus gets one of the worst Mm -hmm. raps ever um he wasn't again he's in the not a bad guy list his whole thing was he 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 might have been blind to a few things that we see now but within his within the spectrum of the world he was acting in he was one of he was like he really genuinely didn't want any harm to come to anybody you know like he was and he didn't even propose any kind of regulation on the checks those came after his death in a group called neo-malthusians now what neo-malthusians did is as opposed to just recognizing that there are these natural checks that happen that we could control the size of populations and thereby the re, you know turn off or turn down the 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 knob that's going to cause the war famine and disease a little bit and that it's that precision that it's like that's where it feels like it gets dangerous that you're well yeah i mean they went to there weren't even it was this is social this is the this is the birth of social science like yes. we're talking you know neo malthusian developed you know herbert spencer developed the concept of social darwinism before darwinism had a name like lots of people have been talking about this stuff for a very long time and then when herbert spencer you know actually published that concept that kind of enveloped the world you know everybody got into this mind frame of oh well that really explains it survival of the fittest you know and we still say it today yeah, uh, survival of the fittest, uh, I, and it's often wrongly attributed to Darwin, but it has yeah. actually Darwin disagreed with it, you know, <laughs> as a social construct. But anyway, the um, moving forward just a little bit, I mean, and we're talking just in a couple inches on the timeline is where neo-Malthusianism starts popping up, and that's coming from the liberation of of women. You know, J. S. Mill was writing he was he wasn't even you know even though he's often he's probably just behind malthus uh j.s mill is is quoted probably most by neo-malthusianism or neo-malthusians but he wasn't even a neo-malthusian they didn't even uh propagate the idea of controlling birth or having control over family size was only conceptualized as moral and physical abstinence or yeah. you know not not you know sleeping in separate beds as than your wife 
you know, to prevent such things. It's, you know, they they did not conceive of any kind. All of the stuff that gets put into the overpopulation argument, you know, in fact, the conversation on overpopulation itself didn't even happen because overpopulation didn't exist. Your population was either sustainable or it was in the process of being checked. Mm -hmm. All he was doing was describing why it's being checked. These people came along and said, oh, well, we can prevent that thing from happening. At, yeah, we can time, do the checking. <laughs> and, and the first checking they were very successful at with, you know, not only, I mean, population control, as we talk about, like birth control and, and, and you know, later on when abortion enters the conversation and blows everything up and all of that stuff, everything started from the publishing of a pamphlet and, or I'm sorry, it was, it was more of a book than a pamphlet, I guess, but uh 1877, there was a a big trial over a sexual education pamphlet that was basically saying we should be able to ask the population question publicly. They were trying to start the discussion and it became a big public trial. The the Malthusian League grew out of that trial. And from that, we have the entire birth control apparatus is born. That's the birth of the entire concept. Before that, in the early 1800s, not even not even popping up on the radar. And this is surely some high status individuals are starting to promote these ideas. Oxford's finest. You know, this was (laughs) it came straight out of the debate clubs. You know, the this this is at a a time when social and ethical societies were first developing. Mm. Um, You know, utilitarianism was developing out of this era. Uh, Humanism you know, it gave mankind the freedom to question the authority of the church. And that was, that was a really strong, but as they kept developing, they realized like, we still need communities within ourselves. And we still need, like, they, they still wanted all of the aspects of church just without the dogma that came with them. Yeah. Without realizing it's maybe a little bit more complex than, just being able to pick and choose, I, I personally feel like, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, well, th- this is where the ethical societies come in. You know, mm-hmm. that's where all of the, you know, that's when you start seeing the humanism symbol. That's, yeah. a, that's a religious symbol. It's a secular religious symbol. Uh, mm-hmm. People don't accept it and they don't understand it really, but that's, that's 100% what it is. It's a religion that was developed in a time where man was realizing that they don't want that God, but they need some kind of God and might as well become it ourselves. And that's where the utilitarianism is where the entire conversation of greater good comes from. It's the mm. weighing the moral moral balance against right. one good against another, which will do the most good. And, and based just, on those decisions. Could you just briefly describe utilitarianism for folks, just in case uh, the people aren't aware of like the, what that concept is? Sure. I'm not going to do it justice, you know, uh, anybody who's interested should really read up on the stuff, but they're, um, well, you're the best we've got right now. So <laughs> fair enough, you know, I'll take a <laughs> shot at it, but, um, it's essentially, it's, um, it's a, it's a moral outlook again, that weighs, mm-hmm. uh, the greater good against the lesser evil. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's basically what it's founded on beyond any principles of dogma. It's founded on that and communities of people who can gather around, basically a moral a moral existence outside of a church environment that's where that's where the movement came from now that said anytime you have that 
kind of just a raw baseline, you have a multitude of different organizations that spring up with kind of that same criteria, but variants on the belief system that change quite dramatically. But it's, it's, it's in these societies that we get like, you know, what later ends up becoming, like I said, the humanist infrastructure that is today, like the international humanists are, that's, that's where all of these threads basically lead. There was a great, I want to say it was in like 19, I want to say like 1960s, it might've been starting in the 1950s, but all of those different um, ethical societies decided that they were going to unite together. Um, and one of the uniting forces was to rival the church on the population question, because yeah. in, in, the, in the heat of the baby boom, uh, they really didn't have time to keep arguing about whether this is okay or not. And mm. they also realized that they couldn't overcome the church in separate factions. They had to kind of unite and use their combined forces. And Julian Huxley was actually oversaw that transition and was the first president. So wow. that's, that's where Julian Huxley, again, one of the most, he's, he's all through this story. His entire family is, you know, Brave New World was, was written um, by all this after helping Julian write his, his book, Life of Science with H.G. Wells. You know, they, they, it, it, it's an insight into where the peak minds were at the time. And People act it, like it's this prescient thing, which it is prescient, but it's also a very informed behind the scenes look at what's coming next. And if you, if you doubt the effectiveness of the Huxley family and how prescient they were, I, I recommend, I only read it for the first time in the last few months. Oh, uh, yeah. And woo, wow, they, they well, certainly, they certainly saw the direction of things in many ways. And, and you know, one of the things I, I read it uh, for the first time, maybe I think I'm going to say like last year. And one mm -hmm. of the things that struck me was how different the experience was rereading it this year, like just through my work, because I have so many more references now yeah, than yeah. I did a year. And it's like, wow, this is like, I thought it was good on the first pass, but when you actually like, I, you know, I lived in 1920s for a little while and I yeah. kind of understood all of what he was saying. And I was like, wow, this thing cuts deep, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. all, all this deserves all the credit he gets. And he was, you know, one of the greatest question askers of, of all time. Their, their entire family is, is, you know, again, Huck, it's the weirdest thing. All this is praised for telling us what's going on. Um, and then Julian is completely abandoned by the people, like the, the societies that he founded now act like he didn't exist. They, yeah. they basically brush him off. They, they act like he did all of the footwork. He did all of this stuff and he just gets, he gets no credit. It was so hard to learn about Julian Huxley because so few people know about him. I had to really go back to him and the people who knew him. And that's how I learned about Julian. Like for anybody who ever wants to know about what happened, as a general statement, like the best way that I've found to learn about history is through guides, through going through important people's lives and, and understanding who they interacted with. When they meet someone, you meet someone. When they do, and, and you get to meet all of the people that were important in those times. And in doing that, if you explore Julian Huxley's life, you'll meet every important person in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And you'll see almost every important thing that happens. He's one of the greatest guides to history that's ever lived. I, I would say his biography, uh, Julian Huxley Memories, 
and David Rockefeller's autobiography. Um, I think it's memoirs, maybe mm-hmm. both of those. Excellent. Those two biographies are like a roadmap to how the 20th century was built, you know, just from the ground up. Um, David Rockefeller's goes into the later 20th century, but Julian Huxley leads us right from the end of the 1800 or at the 1800s going into the 1900s. And it's, it's just an amazing journey. So, and Julian Huxley, correct me if I'm wrong, was I, I was just looking at my notes here trying to find this particular quotation because uh, I w- what I would like to try to do is to, we, we, we've kind of established in this conversation that the leading thinkers, um, the, the elites of, uh, of the scientific community and development of social sciences in the ni- late 1800s, 19, early 1900s at a minimum, we're starting to develop this concept of that, you know, we're going to get into environmental ruin because of uh, exploding populations and that we have the, the we have the motivation and means uh, and abilities to to control this for the better in some way. Is that, is that a reasonable statement yeah. to articulate? Yeah, that's a, OK, I mean, that's that's a fair analysis. I think it's it always gets tricky with words because yeah. like just as an example, um, environment as a concept wasn't developed until 1909 was the first use of the word environment. We, we had never used that terminology prior to that. You know, that's why environmentalism didn't come till a couple of generations later when the word had been in common use for a little while. And it actually made sense to people. Um, before that it was conservationism and conservationism is basically almost entirely predicated on the, the idea that we have too many people, expanding at too quick a rate and showing utter disregard for what their lives, the impact that their lives are having on their surroundings. Mm -hmm. And they were so frustrated that they had to create the word environment to explain to these dummies what they're doing to themselves. That's basically how they saw it, you know, and it's, that's where ecology comes from. It's basically the whole exploration of how life is interconnected and what trying to make the simple guy who's just cutting down trees understand the chain of events he's about to unleash on the world right okay so let me pause you there because that's a great point because i want to get into this quotation that i pulled out and this is directly from one of your videos it's like episode one 10 minutes 45 seconds in if anybody uh uh, wants to reference and wants to go look at it directly and i unfortunately did not write down who said this but i'm pretty sure it's julian huxley go for it and i'll I'll remember yeah you'll remember exactly um even though it is quite true that any radical eugenics policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, it will be important for UNESCO to see the eugenic problem is explained with the greatest care and that the public uh, mind is informed of the issues at stake so that it becomes so that the unthinkable becomes thinkable. And this is where which I've just found like a magnificent quotation because it really talks about the, the fact that they are acknowledging very early on in this cycle, in the early 1900s, that it's going to take. Yeah, that one's from 1946. That's a that's a speech that was delivered in 1946 during the formulation of UNESCO that ended up being published right around the same time as UNESCO. And don't read it from my video. You go read it from his video guys okay no, no. I mean, yes if, go if to the original to, sources but yeah, yeah. it's it's a really thin book it's totally worth the read this is you know the founding of unesco is 
And UNESCO is UN, right? What does UNESCO stand for? Yeah, so it's the United Nations. What is it? It's the United Nations Environment Education Scientific Cultural Organization. Uh, Educational. It was originally the United Nations um, Education and Cultural Organization. But when Julian Huxley was asked to um, help be the like basically the directing secretary to sign it up. What had happened was that he was the head of the inter- intellectual union for the uh, the League of Nations, so he was you know presiding over the previous versions of UNESCO, so to speak. And when they asked him to do that, he ad- he asked them to add an S to the middle to make sure that science was our uh, you know a central focus. So that's why it's not just the United Nations Education and Cultural Organization and it became the science organization is because Julian Huxley had a you know prerequisite to his contract. Perfect. So it, that that quotation blew me away because as I was saying before, it's like the, the planning that has gone into the arc of changing how people think over time and what i know one of the things that you and i have spoken about privately before is how even the original that the people acting on this now have almost even forgotten where it came from and the original intent and that it's thing in motion that, that that you know is just happening in many ways started with this kind of effort so what i'm hoping you could do is to start talking about and then you even start your first episode with the quotation that i loved well i don't know if this is a quotation or just you uh starting it off is that some history is being is purposely being forgotten um so could you talk about what you meant by that uh and how is this being done and kind of bring us into how this desire to have this population control for in these people's minds, very good and noble reasons has led to them trying to engineer how people think over time. Well, the forgottenness aspect, that's um, that came from learning about Julian Huxley, you know, uh, from- That from really one, is everywhere. Well, I just, I, that's, that, that was my doorway. You know, that's the one that blew it wide open. I just, I, you know, I had originally gotten into the eugenics thread through uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and I was shocked. I had no idea. I honestly had no concept that black people were eugenics or were into eugenics. I, I had that, that, that to me was like a shock. I, I really dug deep. The black that. people themselves were executing eugenic policies. Oh, that they were eugenicists, that they were indeed like, like W.E.B. Du Bois was, you know, the NAACP was founded as a, like basically an overarching eugenic organization. Really? The entire, yeah. The entire concept of racialized groups uh, bettering themselves was the, was the whole better people movement. That's where mm-hmm. it, you're suggesting that the NAACP's original formation was to improve the black community through good interbreeding, interbreeding within the black community. Well, there was that was a strong. Again, within any organization, you're going to have multiple outlooks and facets. Sure, but where where they were at at the time of their development, yeah, that was that's wow. how they got their funding. I had no idea. That's how they, yeah, it was it was. 
basically the controversy back then were, you know, so like, like take, for example, you go back with eugenics, you go back to Galton and Galton, even though he was to, by all definitions of the word racist, yeah. without question. Everybody he, was he, racist back then, for sure. You know, a lot of people were, but some people weren't. And that's, it's important to note those people because they were really they were we talk about you know dissidents now about talking yeah i rebel on twitter no those are people that were going completely against the grain they say everything you believe is a lie. you know you have the whole race construct was getting blown up left and right but it was by people no one was really they weren't listening to until later now we go back to them you know but anyway um yeah when when galton was first establishing the concepts you know one of one of his major speeches he was even touching on the fact that like you know uh, the white man's not necessarily superior to the guy in uh, a guy from china like or but he wasn't saying white man because he's from britain and they didn't talk like that he was yeah. basically saying like a, a or he's from england and you know he a, a fellow englishman uh, and a chinese a chinaman type thing I, I don't know what his vernacular was i would have to quote him but it wasn't pretty, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but if yeah. he, his main point was that um, the human race as a whole has potential and that there are people born in China that their potential far outranks most of his countrymen, that the majority of the people being born at the time were a very low quality people. And that's why he was standing up against it. And he's creating this idea. We need better quality people. And the, the whole idea was was throughout every race to rise up and just be the best human race you know it was like they were even though they were staying specific within their own demographics and their own groups um i mean these concepts took on all over the world you know the concept it's itself was you know so there really wasn't a race it wasn't like this was something it was this was an elite accepted it's, it's an elite cross an racial elite. boundaries is what you're it's suggesting el- exactly it, well that's 100 percent, and that's one of the things i get so disappointed with uh, modern scholars because they completely miss the mark they yeah. try to make you and that's i felt deceived like when i found out what actually happened i felt deceived yeah. and that's why i wanted to share the information because I, I'm not like a slouch. I used to read a lot of history before I got into this. Like I've, I'm a lifelong history buff, you know? And for me to at that point in my life, you know, two years ago, you know, I'm 36 years old. I'm just learning this for the first time. And I'm super into, like, it was, it blew my mind. And yeah, the whole narrative is that eugenics is some racist ideology. It's a human race ideology. It's a betterment of all people. Now, within that sec, within that criteria, there are lots of people who definitely fit the definition of racist. And then later on into like the 1910s and with the, you know, as they really start picking up steam into the 20s and 30s, then yeah, especially yeah. in America, a lot there's, of there's a lot of different flavors of eugenicists out there then. Right? 100%. <laughs> but as the core principle, and especially when you scale it back to Oxford, which is where this stuff comes from, it's all comes from Oxford. You just go, if you ever just go to the Oxford Library and you can figure out anything that's ever happened with with all this stuff. It's all of it. Fabianism, eugenics, everything that's changing the world came from a group of dickheads who lived about a hundred and something years ago that just they were so sure that they were better than everyone else. They built the entire world with that notion. It was 
Fucking Oxford, huh? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like I said, like, I don't know. I, I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater because a lot of beautiful stuff came from that. And, and you know, once you actually understand the eugenic argument, it's not as radical as a lot of people make it, especially when you get, you know, past, like once you push past the racist stuff, like the, uh, into, you know, you, you have the, um, gosh, blanking on his name right now. Let's see. I have a file of the, no. Well, like you get into like the pearls, right? Like, like, uh, Raymond Pearl was, uh, a staunch eugenicist, but today historians say like, oh, well, he was one of the biggest critics of eugenics. Uh, he's, he's not necessarily one of the biggest critics of eugenics. He was a big critic of racial eugenics. So he criticized the racial aspects from, you know, he was the director of John Hopkins or John Hopkins and like the, you know, one of the most elite minds in the medical world. He was the head of, he was, he was the, the American version of Julian Huxley. Okay. As far as prestige and presence and stuff like that went. And Julian Oh, that would My be wife's awesome. last name is Pearl. I gotta that look that up. <laughs> if she's related to Raymond Pearl, that's something to know. That's really cool. But yeah, I mean, like you read his stuff. It's not like he abandoned eugenics. He's still like, same with Julian Huxley. He wrote one of the first anti-racist books ever. You know, We Europeans explores the idea of race and basically breaks it down to just a fallacy. And they suggest that's, the, I think, the first if the papers I've read on it are correct, that it's the very first mention of the terminology ethnic group. Like that's, you know, they're the one, like him and Carl Saunders, who was the president of the eugenics society at the time, were the first ones to suggest the terminology like ethnic groups. So if I, okay. So let me try and put this story in a little, you, you, you've got this like, which is clearly like liberal elite eugenics thinking Early 1900s, everybody thinks this is a good idea. And then you get World War II, concentration camps, communists and Nazis and China and doing all this terrible stuff. And I imagine all these concepts get associated with that. But yeah. These intellectuals come in, and correct me if I'm wrong here, this is just how I'm seeing the projection of, uh, of history at this point. They they say, oh shit, we've got a branding problem. Yeah. So can you kind of take us from there? Like how, does, how do they take what they want for results from a population control sort of uh, effort. Cause I, I mean, I know this is still popular cause I still have friends of mine who are, you know, whatever naive, they don't know of history, but they, they're all, they're all environmental hippies and they'll say, well, we've got too many people. So, you know, you know, this, this st stuff still has a mental oh, yeah. people. Um, and they feel there like are, the good guys. There are people who are not having children. Like, oh, like going, they're going to go their whole lives without having children, having no consideration of who's going to take care of them in old age. Oh, like yeah, that is, uh, yeah. that is a policy accomplishment. And you can actually yes. watch that policy be developed. Like Kissinger in the Kissinger report from 1974, which everybody who's interested in this stuff should read, you know, even addresses that as one of the biggest issues left to overcome, you know, by 1974, which is the UN's year of population and where the UN established its, its plan of action, you know, one of the biggest focuses was 
how do we get people to forget that they need at least one kid to survive into old age to take care of them when they're older? So what you're suggesting is that this, it was an explicit policy goal to get people to forget that they're going to need somebody to take care of them when they get old. Yeah, I would not necessarily forget that they're going to need to. It's just just to not consider that as strongly or to just as an example, a lot of if I'm sure if you ask a lot of younger people with maybe a more naive mindset, who's going to take care of them when they're older? One, a lot of them don't even think they're going to live to be older. Yeah. Two, they have this weird idea that the state is going to somehow be there for them. And it's like, bro, there's nobody there for you in this world yeah. except for your family. And when that generational cycle, you know, one thing happened when they, when they train girls to, to start having children later, yeah. like, that's all training, you know, yeah. that's all deliberate policy training. That's a bunch of guys in a room talking about how to have less kids. And as a result, we have women having children later into their life cycle. Well, that later into your life cycle means that you not only your your physical body can't recuperate the same way you could have if you had it while you were young. You could have had three kids while you were, you know, pre or early twenties. Yeah. And the effects would be relatively gone physically by the yeah. time you were in your thirties. If you have a child in your thirties, late thirties, not only could the effects not be just gone, like you could change you for the rest of your life it could end your life. Like the yeah. largest percentage of women that die are women who are giving birth and, in, 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 you know, later in life. It's like anyone who has any consideration for the empowerment of women. Like it's, it's so funny to me that they say like empowering women is letting them have a career till they're 40 and then throwing it all away to have a kid. Like, how is that yeah. empowering anybody? What's empowering is raising a bunch of awesome kids who take care of you. You know, if you start having kids by the time you're 20, by the time they're 20, you're 40. Yeah. Now you've got a kid that's starting a career. And it, it's like you can have your career with your kid. Like yeah. what do you even it's like it's not even a conversation if you really look at the facts. But what it is, it's it's a programming. And yeah, that programming has been applied to um you know, a, a great example, China right now, they had their one child policy. They, mm -hmm. they, the buy-on for that was tremendous. I mean, so many people didn't like that later on, but the buy-on, the initial buy-on of yeah. we're going to have better lives if we limit our families was huge. Well, now their government is being sued by a whole bunch of people whose one child died in a car accident. Yeah. Unfortunate things happen. And now these people are turning 60 and 70 years old and they have no one. They have nothing yeah. in this world. And they're just, they're suing their government because they were lied to. And that's what's happening in on a massive scale yeah. just to get those numbers dropped. I mean, I, I bought into that level of propaganda for years. You know, I would have, oh, I, I am sure, too. you know, I, I, I think it was listening to Jordan Peterson with some, I, I forget exactly what it said, but it's like, you know, there, there was, um, and it was the meditating on the idea that you just don't, whatever you accomplish doesn't really so much exist moving forward. If you don't have kids is another, yeah. you know, yeah. Legacy is a huge <laughs> thought. Yeah. And, and, and it's, this also, you know, and this kind of goes back to like the natural selection sort of thing, but it's like, you know, having kids is, it, it has to be a moral thing because morals don't exist without children. 
because people don't exist without children. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's like you don't does a you know, it's this weird way of thinking about if a tree falls in a wood doesn't make a sense. The woods. It, no, yeah, you're just here, chasing, make a sound. you're chasing, no. chasing the chicken back to the egg. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, the, the morality. So the idea that we can not breed ourselves into morality, we can limit, eliminate ourselves into morality is it's a, I, it's an amoral point of view in my personal uh, estimation, because morals require people to exist. Otherwise you just have nothingness. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's hard, man. You know, good and evil is probably the most difficult conversation ever to have because, you know, intentions weigh in and ignorance well, good and evil in. always has a point of view. Oh, like, right. You know, good and evil, like what is good for me may have evil bearing on you. And this is this is like th this is this has kind of become part of my core beliefs and where I think this is and one of the reasons that I'm so interested in the utilitarian way of thinking because i believe yeah. it is it is the denial of nature and in, in and of itself evil like it is it is almost a it's a it's the morality of hucksters and tricksters where you attempt to say that there's this sort of universe and i think sam harris is like the kind of person that falls for this shit hook line and sinker you know where he just gets on and says you can buy if you have enough information you can precisely calculate the right thing to do in any situation and everybody should be striving to make those calculations and it's like that's bullshit you have you and you have me and if we cooperate together we can have you know positive outcomes from ever but you can't cooperate with everybody all the time and so we're going to conflict and the right thing to do if you're going to have a conflict is try to win yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different philosophies and ideas at play in all of these situations. Yeah. So it's hard. To, I, I never like to just, you know, pin it on, on one thing. And also just, just as a, you know, like a little insight that I, I gained recently is that even though I don't necessarily um, cast people in like the shadow of good or evil, I did find this rather insidious. I found yeah. the approach that these people have taken with like the family planning industry, um, even though, like I said, on a scale of zero to 10 of dupability, I was, I'm a 10, you know, yeah. I, I drive a, I own a Prius and I didn't have kids. This is the know? approach I would want to use in the modern age to wage war on my enemies. I would want my enemies thinking like this, and I would want my friends and family thinking exactly opposite to population control, environmentalism, and, and all of these things. Because but just one to, of, just to take some air out of that argument, mm -hmm, yeah, bit, please. I, like I said, I just I I I even felt like animosity, like of being duped. Like same thing with the eugenics thing. Like yeah. I felt like like oh man, you fooled me. Like and and that makes me want to like really get to the bottom of this. And one of the things I found at the bottom was that a lot of it's just happenstance. Like at the time where all of this stuff was developing, you just didn't talk about these sort of things. Like it was totally improper in society to even bring it up. So the fact that the history is just omitted, I thought was like some insidious ploy to not, yeah. you know, do it. I was wrong. I was wrong. I don't think that that yeah. was actually what was, what was afoot. I think what was actually happening is, 
you know, more of a, you know, you just have a series of circumstances that built themselves. And one of those circumstances was the war, the church and, and secularism, you know, that was always going to happen. And the, the, the background kind of disappeared in the abortion became the, the, the head cycle. And then when people are like really fighting on the battleground of abortion or birth, whether it was abortion or before abortion, it was birth control. It was all of these little inches that mm -hmm. slowly became, you know, 20 million people being sterilized in one year in 1983, yeah. you know? So it's all these little steps to there, but every little step was made with the, with, you know, a value judgment. And it, the, the lack of commentary is because people felt improper about commenting. However, if you go back to the policies, all of those people from the 1950s before then, like the whole obstructionism didn't exist back then. They, no one was obscuring their meaning. The no. whole point, like the way they delivered their thoughts was through the written word. So it was very important for them to be precise in their language, which is one of the reasons Julian Huxley's quote is so great. Yeah. You know, it, it's like he's cutting right to the point. That's exactly what he means. All of this semantics and the blanketing things and legalese came later when people were who had who had gotten the, the, that mouse got their cookie and now they're going for the glass of milk. And in order to get the glass of milk, they have to, you know, kind of trick the trick. That's where they just blow through all of the, you know, actually processing the history of their own actions. And it becomes about winning a battle. Yeah. And once you get locked into that battle mindset, you're, you're, you're gone. Like that's, that's why I try not to take a side in this kind of stuff or like, you know, like I see where your head's at, where it's like, this is what you would want to do to your enemy. But then that starts making me feel like I'm being attacked which well, makes me defensive if, and then i don't i don't think right and and i think this is you know i i believe you when you say and i, I sincerely believe you when you say these people were innocently minded when they that they their intent was to do good it's and and that's part of the reason i think it almost has to be like that to be effective like nobody wants to think to themselves hi, I'm being mimetically influenced and taking on ideas from people who are evil, like people who are right. out to like harm. So and it's very hard to convince and to get that many nefarious actors who are acting in concert to influence so many ah, people. It's I'll like, stipulate that the people that came after 1960, yeah. just as an example, like the products of a lot of the early indoctrinators um, were just terrible. They were terrible. They they not only they they purposefully obscured things like the mm. Sierra Club, like the whole that whole movement that grew My out. My parents of the loved 90s. the Sierra Club. Don't say that. Well, I mean, they've accomplished a lot. They have yeah. accomplished a lot, and and that's the thing about organizations is they outlive their members. So yeah. an organization can build an amazing reputation, but you get a bad president, and where's it going? And I'm not even saying the guy was necessarily bad, but they they were insidious. They they deliberately manipulated so, children so, to get their to get their uh, achieve their agenda. So expand on that more. Like I mean, most people I remember the Sierra Club, the big coffee table books with the beautiful pictures from I think Ansel Adams on it or, or sure. whoever. And like, well, what what was so insidious about the Sierra Club, or at least like the some of their leadership? I think the best way to describe them is in like a two year process. And, and that two-year process goes from 
them formulating, or I guess maybe three years. Yeah, maybe three years. But they formulated the uh, the crisis committee, mm-hmm. and they basically they had an environmental crisis committee that was acting in conjunction with like the Club of Rome, which just yeah. you know to take some of the mystique out of that. What the Club of Rome was, especially in its foundational years, was a network of top-ranking officials. Like, like, and by officials, I'm saying that incorrectly. Scientific authorities is a better mm-hmm. way to say it. So it was the academic elite, the elite of the elite, were in a hundred-member club that were all coordinating their activities. So this is like the goal. real Illuminati you're talking about. No, no. <laughs> yeah, and, and see, that's another. It's very important to remember, like. Like all of the foundational thoughts here, like uh, come from like uh, like you know H.G. Wells is open conspiracy. It's yeah. called open conspiracy for a reason because if you have a secret society, people ex- they they think that you're up to no good. So his whole argument was whatever we do next, we have to be as open as possible. We have to lay. And you know what? If you have a bookmark secret, nobody everybody wants to know what's inside it. They're all guessing. But if you give them a stack of papers this big, no one reads it. I'm the only person who's read it, you know, and it's like in probably 200 <laughs> years, the, the this... modern scholars that I'm reading aren't reading the source material. No one's actually going back to this stuff. You know, they were wide open about it, but no one's actually reading it. Just this got is, filed away. This is this reminds me of Eco Health Alliance and uh, the Wuhan labs right now. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Is that something similar? The the, uh, NIH grants that they got, they were the ones who were like funding uh, uh, all all the Corona bat virus research. And like it was just all public documentation going on. And yeah, yeah. it's all right. (laughs) Nobody's reading it. No, it's the best place to hide things is why right in the open. And then you sound like a lunatic because you have to explain against the backdrop of every expert in the industry. And you're like, well, they're all coordinating together. No, they're not. Actually, they say right here on their resume that they're a, a member of the Club of Rome, which yeah. is a coordinating group that has an interchanging membership from year to year that never exceeds more than 100 people. They say it like you can, but just getting people to actually read is like, it's it's like, look, they're telling you right here that I have not figured out how to, that's the, that's the hurdle I'm still trying to overcome. This it's so funny that you mentioned that. Cause I'm telling, I'm having a discussion with my buddy, Max. Hi, Max. If you, uh, if you're listening to this at some point and I'm explaining a lot of this stuff in terms of like, sure. I, I think we were talking about the trans movement and like, you know, how I, I'm like, look, the UN has this shit in their educational, like, and I actually called mainstreaming. Yeah. Oh, like they're mainstreaming this whole gender gender shit and it's part of their public education documentation and they have it right there for kids as young as five to start taking on these mental models and he's like no fucking way blah 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 and i'm like i show him the documentation and um then i'm like when we get back i'm like let's watch some of shaky's videos and we sit down and start walking the videos and he's like out like a light sorry no it's a very interesting interview but you like if you're not a i know i know if you're not a wonking into this stuff it's so hard and you make it entertaining like, well, I tr- dude, and you're not, tr- you're doing the reading for everybody. <laughs> I, I've been trying with the videos. I'm actually on the next project. I'm switching mediums for a little bit because I just really have, I have a kind of a sense of urgency to get a lot of this stuff is so relevant. Like, it's I think that's so the hardest relevant. thing. It's the hardest thing about it's like mankind can, I, I it's Kierkegaard, but I, 
I, I'll, I'll murder it, but it's like we can only we have to live life forward, but we can only understand, only understand it, it backwards. Hundred back. yeah. percent, yes. And, and to understand yep. where we're at, we have it's like we 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 have this concept like we're traveling forward, but we're not. We're falling. And and like if you can look, if you can turn and look backwards, and you can see where everything, you can get a better trajectory on where you're actually yeah. going to land, and you can steer yourself better from there. I think from historic. Uh, historical perspective because when you're going forward you're just free falling and you're looking at all the stuff but you're not accounting for all of everything that's attached to it like you're just you're and you're going off of all of these people who are also lost like you have to look backward to yeah. actually understand where you're standing and uh, this reminded me of this uh comic that i saw recently where it's like those those who don't study history are are uh destined to repeat it and those that do are destined to watch everybody else repeat it <laughs> yeah listen to basically yeah that's yeah. very real yeah because yeah. you're trying to convince people that's that like yeah whatever okay so that topic's mm -hmm. trending but this is really important well, when did it happen 75 years ago never mind yeah, yeah. They're, they're, no, nobody yeah. wants to do the work because there's also this like i know are you familiar with like mimetic desire um renee gerard's theory of like how we just we just copy each other and no anyway. but maybe maybe passing but not not oh you've got to read you, you got to read it some renee gerard and scapegoats and i i've got I'm a sure i probably you. at least heard it you know through i'm someone, sure I, you i'm know, sure but. you i'm sure you have and it it's it's very dip like it's very difficult for people not to believe what their friends believe and you get in these uh cycles of reinforcement yeah. of these ideas that are either you know positive or negative and anyways it's, so it's like when you ask somebody to start thinking greatly differently than is outside of their social spheres it it is like literally painful psychically yeah. painful for them i mean what is i react violently sometimes like i, mean, I get like i i get a i get a knee-jerk reaction yeah. of like like defense mechanism, like, how dare you challenge me? And then I think it through for a second. And I'm like, that's not me. That's a thought that I had. It's so hard to process through that. You know, I, I'm with you, brother. I'm, I'm with you there. I it's mean, a challenge. What, I mean, what of the I talked about this with uh, the Alexandros podcast too a bit. Like one of the blessings that I've had and one of the major curses in my life also has been I'm a very disagreeable person. I even took oh, a personality yeah. test uh, to Devin that like one of uh, Jordan Peterson's personality tests, incredibly disagreeable person. But one of the things that I think it, it allows me to do is I don't I don't I don't necessarily accept ideas just because it's popular and people are around right. me. On the downside, it makes me tell people that I disagree with them all the time, which just doesn't. doesn't it's isolating. It's it's isolating. It's isolating. Yeah, it definitely is. It's like but you know the people that you find are quality people. You know the people who yeah. I think a person who doesn't mind being told. Like one thing about me is I can like I might knee jerk react in the moment. Like if you're like if I'm mid sentence and someone but you'll challenges think me, about it. Yeah. I will process it and I will I will come back and I'm like thank you yes. and I appreciate you more I'm, for having corrected. me. Hundred percent. Know? Like, you know, I mean, I, I, to this day, I, I, I've gone back and apologized to people. I was like, oh, like years later, yeah, oh, years sure. later, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, oh, I too. was wrong. <laughs> I was, was so wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Let's, let's, uh, I'm going to steer this a little bit back to yeah. the, the propaganda. And we, we've been talking about how, you know, the, and we started talking about the Sierra club 
and um, how that they started. I, I, I'm not sure if you got into this. Well, so, long. yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Really, so one of the most important things that brings us back to UNESCO. OK, yeah. so you have uh, you got to so geographically where all of this is taking place is right around. You've got Stanford, Berkeley, the Sierra Club are all basically kissing organizations like those organizations are just 100 uh, percent have always since the beginning been just you know, their names are all over everything. They, they work together. And all of those generally coordinate uh, through UNESCO and with UNESCO. So okay. UNESCO conferences ha have been a main way for intellectual commingling uh, since its foundation in 1947-48. Yeah. So like since the first conferences, that's where these conferences have now been hosted. And so basically what the Sierra Club was doing was acting as a hub for uh, the academic elite of, of, of their era and of that, um, you know, before this is before ecologists existed, like ecologists, just like environment as a word, as a terminology didn't, was not passed around or even recognizable hmm. prior to maybe 1915, 1920 outside of the literature the word ecology was only inside of the literature. It had never drifted like very few actual departments. Okay. You've got like Stanford and you've got like, I think, uh, you know, Colorado and you have these different areas that were developing these programs. And that's where the Sierra club and the club of Rome and stuff kind of coordinated their efforts. Club of Rome was managing things on a systems level. So they were not only like that was headed up by the, the scientific director of the OECD which is basically the, the people that the UN puts in charge of science. So the guy who the UN had put in charge of science as a whole started the Club of Rome with a businessman okay. of equal repute. Um, and they had, a, they got some funding. It was an informal organization. And it's basically, like I said, it's like an intellectual community. It's not some nefarious plant. It's a lot of their correspondence is well-documented. You can go back and read histories and email chains and verbal histories. No one's obscuring the fact they were a member. It's actually a point of pride for someone to have been selected. There's only 100 people selected, yeah. and, and it's a changing list. If, if they called me tomorrow and said, hey, you're a member, I would, I would, I would be well, honest. It's like the president's you know? calling to serve. You, know, you don't say no. You yeah. And, and like these are, you get a you seat get, at the table. You get to exactly it's a seat at the table. And so with those seats, those many seats, yeah. what the Sierra Club was able to do was they had already formed the largest or one of the largest and most well-known environmental organizations in existence since before the term environmentalism even existed. You know, they are the founding and but they've also got their fingerprints all over eugenic stuff. They've got, you know. California, where all of this stuff is happening, that was the epicenter of American eugenics. You know, people don't yeah. like to think about this, but the Stanford Binet test, like the IQ test that everyone's like, oh, IQ is eugenic. That's Stanford. It was developed at Stanford. The, yeah. the Human Betterment Foundation, you know, all of these, all of these like, like, oh, well, Hitler based all of his rules off of that was California buddies, you know, and that was these <laughs> these schools. And it's been the same schools that have gestated now this. It's like ecology grew out of people trying to describe to other people what. OK, I'm going to take you on a little journey and then we'll we'll come back yeah, to. Yeah, 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 please. But 
Neo-Malthusianism originally failed because they were not able in Britain at the time to convince the underclasses to stop breeding. It came yeah. off as, as, a, as a, like, yeah, they convinced everybody in the room and the debate club, but all of the <laughs> propaganda was like, hey, stop breeding, you filthy wretches, you know? And for some reason, it just didn't connect. I so why. You know? <laughs> and so later, you know, they're, they're same message, but they were still, they were the only people printing sexual education propaganda. The yeah. Malthusian leagues started popping up all over the world. That's where Margaret Sanger, you know, um, the Drysdale family who are behind the Malthusian League, um, like the, the funding and the fundamentals of it, were, you know, mentors to, you've got Sanger who basically takes their teachings and applies new terminology and a new way of selling it. You know, it's basically yeah. a new packaging for the same ideas. And this time it was sold as birth control, which is right. You know, the alternative terminology, she even mentions it in her biography, it's race control. Mm -hmm. they, they were they were unsettled um, population or overpopulation control mm -hmm. was another one. And then family control. So family control turned into family planning and race yeah. control turned into birth control because they thought that those were the most appealing terms at the time. And that's how they were launched. And those are her words. You can you know, we can post right. them. People can look it up. It's. And now it's women's empowerment. Yeah, you know, it yeah. was then. It was it okay. was then. I mean, that's how they were selling. They were saying basically empower yourself to not. And, you know, good on them to a large extent. Right. Teaching women who don't want to be subjugated to childhood. Like if you had no concept of why babies are showing up in your belly and they just keep showing. Like we forget yeah. like the literacy rate. Stuff, these people did a lot of good. Like yeah. there's a lot of good that came from this education. I, but and this, certainly there's plenty of poor women too, who are essentially forced to have kids, right? Like, oh. it, it, yeah. Like that's well, they don't even thing. know why they're having them. And the yeah. husband can't, you know, the husband's work. I mean, this is before the eight hour work day. And, and yeah. also mind you, these are the same people who got us the eight hour work day. Like these are the same organizations that founded the unions. They, they propagated this material through the unions they did this stuff like all of this huh. stuff is all interconnected into this worldview of it's an it's a morality issue. It, yeah. it boils down to the greater good. And they're just trying to solve a problem here. And if you don't want war, you have to consider what are you going to do with all the people? And the best thing that they could come up with was not make them. Let's just huh. not make all of the and it really people. And it really was framed as. We control the population. We engineer it because this is this is new to me. I mean, I've I've listened to a lot of your stuff and had my own readings and whatnot, but this is completely new. That right it's on. either population control and population engineering through these kind of methods, or we go to war. That's 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 the whole. I mean, if you look at okay, so it's hard for people to process this sometimes when I when I've said it before, but. You know, what are the UN's main objectives? Solving famine, establishing world peace, and basically giving people medical treatment. So they're yeah. actually just, they're a, their mission of world peace is being solved. The only way it's being solved is through Malthusian checks. They're addressing Malthusian checks. Wow. That's, that's all, and that's, the, you know, the Malthusian League dissolved after the 1927 or might have been a little bit but same year 
as the uh, 1927 inter first international uh, world population conference that was hosted by Sanger and Huxley and Pearl. They all hosted this thing in Geneva. Um, and that's the Malthusian League dissolved and the League of Nations took on the organizational aspect. Margaret Sanger um, had helped Marie Stopes open up the first birth control clinics in England. And then basically from there, she went on propagating. She changed laws, helped change laws in the U.S., went over to India and started preaching the word of Malthus. And that's why population control picked up in there. She was in India around in the 30s and all the, you know, basically developed the groundwork for what later became the overpopulation. But we got to remember, it was all about it was all about peace, overpopulation. No one saw the baby boom coming. No one saw it. Huh. What, what, it, what ended up happening is they did too good of a job addressing the Malthusian checks. So first they solved, and this is like the Rockefeller, all of the people who solved these problems are the people who paid for the solution. So like, like as an example, you have like the Rockefellers or like Hugh Moore, like Hugh Moore created disposable cups. You know, we think about okay. Dixie why, cups. Yeah. Why right? is that? Why? Why oh, do we care? Because before about that, Dixie there cups. was community cups. Oh, had I mean, that's no a health issue, of, right? That's a huge. Yeah. The disposable cup changed the world, like <laughs> saved so many lives. You're the don't first person I've this. ever heard say that, but it makes so much sense. It's real shit, especially when you see the pictures and you see what these people. I mean, people, they had a community cup at a hospital. Yeah. You know, I mean, doctors are drinking out of this and then the patients are drinking. It's like, it's insanity. They had no concept. And then you got a guy like Q Moore who comes along and he's like, fucking, these people are gross. And he's like, you know what? You got to educate these fools on how gross they are. And so that's what he did. And like the Dixie Cup company is responsible for a lot of the, you want to talk about propaganda. That's where a lot of the um, education came from about sanitation was him selling his cups to people and the propaganda was to explain why you need disposable cups. But those disposable cups saved so many people that later in 1960, I, I want to say it's 65, um, he founded the Population Crisis Committee and like did this whole, like he had to, because he saved too many people. And the moral question comes down to, if you save 10 people and you decide that, you know what, none of these people are going to have a good life, but they're dependent on you, right? Like, where's the, you know, if you can, if you can just save five of them instead, they would have twice as good of a life. That's where these guys were coming from. So you have like the Rockefellers on the other side of that, providing the agricultural advancements. I mean, they, we're talking like just, just DDT alone. Okay. DDT alone was a game changer. Malaria almost disappeared. Yeah. Can you imagine like, even after World War II and all of the death and devastation, we still came out ahead on people is the effect that DDT had. It was a, a game changer. So many people were surviving that weren't, that weren't, they weren't meant to survive in these people, you know? So you see like now famines are going to start happening. So they have to solve the food problem. So they solved the disease problem by killing all these bugs. And now all these people are alive. Now they have to solve the food problem. So then you have the advancements in the agricultural industry that solve a huge amount of the food problem. So everybody's happy, except for then they realize that all of these chemicals and processes that they have created to solve these problems have now caused unintended consequences of 
poisoning the earth. If, if, if yeah. all, the, all the birds were dying, you know, yeah. DDT was beautiful, but then all of a sudden mosquitoes started evolving yeah. and they were evolving resistance and you were killing their entire ecosystem. So that's where you get Silent Spring. And Silent Spring is born out of, that's Rachel Carson, who, you know, the foreword of her, uh, her reprint um, was written by um, Julian Huxley, you know. There, oh, and Silent great, Spring is when, what, when all the birds died? No, Silent Spring was the, the book that started the environmental movement by okay. all, pretty much all accounts. That's wrong. I mean, that's not true. Sure. She, she was, I mean, there's like, like this book right now, nobody should read it. It's a terrible book, but it's called Road to Survival. This was one of like her inspirations. And it's like amateur scientists taking on big questions. And that's the tradition that started. So like Huxley's generation was all about the world's leading experts were the ones publishing the books. Then you have the paperback revolution and all of a sudden way more literacy starts exploding and way more people start. And then you get the non-experts weighing in, and you get the people who were outside of the actual systems. So a non-chemist weighing in on chemistry was insane. Uh, but all of her points were extremely valid. And she was addressing it from a biological standpoint saying, this is just murder. You're killing it. And then it's for very limited gain. Like right now we're gaining all of these people, but within 10 to 20 years, we're not going to be able to use the chemicals anymore because yeah. the soil's going to be gone. We're not going to yeah. be able to, the, you're, you're, you're messing with the life cycle. And that's where yeah. the EPA got developed. And from that, that's where like the government, because the government had to get involved because the scientists came out and said, excuse me, man, we're the experts. We know what we're doing. And these chemicals are helping people. They're saving people. More people are alive now than have ever lived. You're just a curmudgeon. Get out of here. Yeah. And it was, you know, John F. Kennedy stepped forward and said, well, the government's going to do an independent study. And when they did their independent study, they said, well, Miss Carson made a lot of really solid points. And that's when we started getting environment. Those are the first environmental regulations come from there. And mm. that's where the Sierra Club got super involved. You know, the Sierra Club comes out of this wave of college educated people reading silent spring you know they're the the main it was uh, first off uh women scientists are like gold to marketing you know like you just like margaret mead at the time was one of the biggest names in the world just because she was a woman scientist but if you ask what kind of a scientist a lot of people at the time couldn't tell you but they knew her name i'm gonna tell my wife that too so i don't know if you know she's a scientist Uh, that's awesome you know and you know the world needs more i guess but there's it's just you know I, that's what we're told all the time but there's at the at that time she wasn't even really the scientist they were making her out to be like yeah. everyone was assuming that she was doing all these in-depth studies and all this stuff but she wasn't she was just reading other people's work and describing it beautifully she yeah. was taking she was taking other people who can't convey their message appropriately and conveying it through a, just a, a beauty it's it's probably the most beautiful work ever written on the subject i can't you know i have zero hate for rachel parson but she was not you know in you know, everybody know it's kind of like a joke that like when she wrote the sea beneath the sea around us like her first hit everyone thought she was this like famed oceanographer and she had never even been scuba diving you know but she doesn't correct anybody because otherwise you lose the argument with the expert in the white lab coat so at the time it was this lady versus those people. She ended up dying of cancer. And ever since then, the establishment, anytime an establishment expert speaks, 
it's completely disregarded. They, they became the enemy. So the people who work for the oil companies, the chemical companies, all those people went from your life-saving, friendly neighborhood scientists of right. the 50s to into the 60s. They the were the ones enemy. that were responsible for the population boom. And yeah. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. reason that you all have such a great life that you're yeah. able to go ahead and throw your burn your bras and throw your books and do all that <laughs> stuff. Like all the, your whole existence, the people that you owe that to, yeah, they're the bad guys and they were out to get you the whole time you know it's just right and right. Like, to a certain extent there were profit models going well, there's but, always like, profit motives right like, i mean that's the optimization problem you're optimizing but, to something you know that's that's dollars and everybody aligns to that and there's always and especially fallout. yeah and especially at the time capitalism versus socialism was huge yeah. so the competitive edges were huge and mm-hmm. i mean these were these were super debatable stuff but i think a lot of it just comes down to blind spots yeah. And th- th- those those specialization blind spots are killers because you get so locked into what you're focused on that, you know, everything you become a hammer, everything starts yeah. looking like nails and you just you can't even envision a world without your nails because your nails are your nails. Yeah. And it's there's once you become so good, at one thing like, you know, my brother's a professional like game player. Right. And so I've, I've been. Yeah, yeah, he's Magic the Gathering, Hearthstone, stuff like that. Um, and he's very, very good at what he does. And I and because of him, I've been exposed to a lot of people who are these experts on these like you know, closed system, I call them closed system games, right? Like okay. And the thing that I find amazing about that community in general, and I've personally, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good game player, not of you know, a professional caliber, but like it gives you once you become specialized and very good at one thing your confidence grows to what you think that you can surmise from much less work on another thing um <laughs> that's i think that's some alert uh, a saying i'm learning about engineers like they why they walk into a room and they think they can solve everything based on the knowledge that they have coming into the room yeah, and that's and 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 I I say closed system specifically because in many ways like what, I, what, what and I'm not the only one to ever these are not original thoughts but sure the, the what we what I think that we had was we had this like um, explosion no pun intended and in, in like physics and science and chemistry. Um, where we were able to achieve miraculous results yeah. um, in a way ve- and, and, and a lot of power was developed. And yeah. then you had this like psych, this, this science and, and that was science and science was powerful and precise and you could get things done with it. And then you had this sort of like these social sciences, these soft sciences like psychology, uh ecology environmentalism which were in many ways much less uh much more complex systems but people assumed because of the work of people like uh pavlov and skinner that you could get this sort of scientific engineering and have these precise outcomes without you know deal and have that kind of level of confidence and now you you just have this entire industry of bullshit papers uh, in the humanities, which I, if you're familiar with James Lindy. And, oh, uh, yeah. Helen yeah, Pluckrose. Lindy, like, yeah. Yeah. What they did. And it's just like everybody wants to have that badge of power that I'm a scientist and an academic who knows things. 
and they're all hucksters. There's so there's yeah, I mean, a lot of take, them are hucksters. I should say it's, it's <laughs> tough, man. It's all tough. It's so tough. Like I said, I, I feel like I feel like I know these people to a certain extent. You know, like I I I I, I I've read their work. I, I you know lived through their eyes. Like like Margaret Re- Mead was a social scientist, and she was a complete. She was a huckster. She, she, was gonna, she thank you. <laughs> she lied. She yeah. lied. Her her whole first work was a big work of fiction. Like she did go to the island, but a lot of the stuff she says happened in the book. She later admitted, like, no, that didn't happen. I just wrote that because I thought that would, you know, it's, it was. She was making her point about free love, and she was engineering how, the results. Yeah, and that's a lot of people do that, you know, and that yeah. did that that happened. But the same in the same breath, they also made a lot of awesome observations. Like, you know, like her, her Franz Boaz totally changed the, like her, her teacher changed the entire understanding of how the human life cycle worked, how it should be observed, like how museums should be structured, how we should synthesize information from the past. Like, like, sure, a lot of stuff does, it's, it's hard to prove in a lab and it doesn't break down mathematically, but only a fool would say you know it was it didn't have substance you know it, it's especially as a criticism to their times i just think that the overwhelming amount of uh like the stuff you're talking about is less a cause of the social sciences themselves and more a cause of the over reproduction of um academic society like they they well, i think i've heard it described as the overproduction of elites well they're it's hard because you you can't have too many elites otherwise they lose they, they like the exclusionary is necessary you know what they have is an abundance of um like lower lower rung well-educated people you know yeah. one of the most commonly misused word is educated educated is yeah. to me you know, interchangeable with trained, you know, so they want better trained people. But mm-hmm. education is something that died out a long time ago. Gone is the, the age of the polymath, you know, yeah. where a man could tell you everything. A single man could tell you everything. You know, yeah. in, in 1920, there was like 20 of them that could yeah. tell you everything. And you can go back there and learn from them now. And their, their teachings are just as relevant as, you know, but what happened was they saved all of these lives. You've got at all of these, this overhang of people and they're coming up, um, you know, in some, in some clips, some footage that I'll release soon, uh, they're talking about, or you know what, there might even be one on my YouTube channel, uh, just like a little excerpt of in 1967, they were talking about what are we going to do? We have all of these people and no way to educate them properly. So basically what they were saying was like, well, we just got to get lower standards. Mm-hmm. That was their solution is they have to, because you have to train these people to be good workers. Otherwise, they're not effective in your economy. They're not helping you compete nationally. You know, these are national economies competing. You can't just yeah. Yeah. have a generation of duds, you know. So you had to, they built out the institutions. They padded the PhD market. And then also uh, the Ford Foundation, along with, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation. And say the, I mean, I think... Carnegie might be the largest investor in the humanities, but to the great extent, all of that humanities investment came right here at the same time period we're talking about with UNESCO at the turn of like into the 1950s. 
So when you come away from war, that's when they started shifting more towards the humanities. Within about 10 years, they recognized this huge population explosion. And that's when the humanities humanities started shifting to address that. And 10 years later, that's when you get and the, that's the uh, environmentalism ecology, right? That's where the that's where all of the not just the environmentalism ecology. I mean, this this is but where population, the, but birth control, no, civil civil rights, like civil all rights. of this, like the entire civil rights movement is. How does how a civil rights uh, map into this this line of thinking? Well, it's the humanities, dude. Okay, you know, it's the idea of rights comes from the humanities. Yeah, you know, the humanities are not a bad thing, and you know, though. The psychology, yes, I think, you know, no one should take psychologists too seriously, but only a fool would discredit the, the accurate observations that they've made and the insights that have been provided from, you know, like Skinner, his work falls yeah. apart in later generations. Like it's been shown now enough time has passed to where you can kind of understand that the programming that he was doing wasn't as amazing as he he was convinced it was that right. the you know the genetics don't really pick this stuff up and you di you didn't really even though they kind of thought that he might have solved the missing link in 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 environmentalism or in uh, evolution it, it didn't end up panning out that way but that doesn't invalidate the observations and that doesn't it also doesn't just because it didn't work out doesn't erase operant conditioning and the effects that it has had on our society. You know, it's like, you can't go back just because someone was wrong. It's a and useful model. It worked and then it yeah. got adopted, but it only works to a certain right. effect. You know, you can, right. only we're still not ants, right? We're still people. We're still, there's still feedback loops that you, you can't be avoided and people can't be completely programmed. And in his defense, it's also our life hasn't yet become a controlled experiment. But I just think I think yeah. a few people it's close. It's getting closer every day to where every person wakes up and experiences the same things in a different version. Yeah. But it's this is, not this is a this is the point where I would argue that that's impossible. And there's going to be some blowback. If, if oh, the closer we get to it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about like you and I are of a similar generation. Yeah. You know, um, we've never really talked before today too much, um, but I guarantee we share a ton of the same memories, you mm -hmm. know, and that's because we lived our lives in, during the TV generation. We grew yeah. up inside. Same of, memes. Same ideas. Yep. We're watching the same thing. At the, everyone was watching the same thing at the same time. Yep. You know, and that's where like I, this programming, the, the two areas that were completely foundational like foundationally built by uh, philanthropy are public television. So yep. it's the study of television and population control. Yep. Wow. Those are the only two areas. And the Ford Foundation was the biggest contributor to both of them. So the Ford Foundation not only developed the education that then developed the, demogra the demographers and the ecologists, and they invested all this money into the legal system to develop the lawyers who could write the codes. They thought in long-term planning strategies and were investing in the society that they wanted that's that's what they were doing and on the flip side of that they were also investing into the television and the how to program people and how to control this into people because if you don't get the buy-in it doesn't your system doesn't work but yeah. you can read it i mean the ford foundation annual reports are the most instructive guide 
to any year you want to learn about. You can learn about what's what happened 10 years later by going like, okay, so you're learning about something in 1977, go back to the 1967 Ford Foundation uh, annual report and see what they were investing in. Wow. And that's where that's where you get the cultivation of PhDs. So that's where the people start popping up for these professions. So you what you you know the guy who wrote Sapiens, um, Yurav, you, you the Yuval guy. Yeah, I haven't figured yeah. him out yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering if you had a take on him because everything that you 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 were just talking about reminds me of like what gets quoted at least on Twitter from him, like in his association with the WEF and and whatnot, you know, and how programming humans is basically a solved problem i think is his is yeah that's a scary that's a scary yeah. prognosis and i don't believe not, him but you know i don't i mean you know it's hard to say that he's wrong um and just that like from and once again i haven't d- dug yeah. in i don't yeah. know maybe he is maybe when i break it down i'm like oh that's where he missed but just on the surface of that yeah that sounds pretty like i stay away from contemporary sur- sources i think almost anything post 2000 is almost garbage comparatively mm. i mean when you just when you're when you spend all day reading the work from actual like i said you're reading like bertrand russell was my first guide to this mm-hmm. that's like not a lot of people hold up to bertrand russell you know you can't yeah. read a modern scholar who has these insights there it's just the goods aren't there so i haven't like i haven't you know nudge theory and the uval yeah. and all these people yeah no i don't get into it but I'll tell you, I am familiar with what they're saying because I'm studying the stuff way back at the source. Yeah. So yeah. I understand the fundamentals without all of the game of telephone that has happened throughout academia in, in the meantime. I feel like I get a clearer picture of what's actually happening this way. So I might let, be way off, but yeah. So the, so let's let's take this conversation forward a little bit in in terms and, and like because I think we're starting to touch on like modern day. And I want to. I get never your... got to conclude my point about the oh. the Sierra Club. Yeah, go, go, to, go on the Sierra Club then, hole. please. But where it all comes back with the, you know, so after after the publishing and stuff of the Carson book, you get this cultivated crop of environmentalists, right? Yeah. And the crisis committee that they formed was set out with the explicit purpose to commandeer the youth. So wow. the whole okay, thought- I'm so glad you, you brought us back here. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. And, and this was, this is, it's actually vocalized. You can read yeah. it for yourself in the 1969, uh, I think it's the April edition of UNESCO Courier, which is yeah. also, it's a, it's a, it's a pamphlet slash magazine that is a great resource to see how this stuff developed. Now it's important to note that since Julian Huxley had founded, helped to found UNESCO, uh, they had now by this point been a combined with, I want to call him the IBE, but this is where the James Lindsay work comes in. Okay. All the Ferrari or Fiari. I'm sorry, I only read these people. I, I have a terrible yeah. accent. I, I'm probably you know, I used to, pronouncing everything. A buddy of mine used to say, I would say, um, Ethereum, when he was like, Well, at least it shows that you learned about this stuff by reading. Because yeah. it, it's, it's Ethereum. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I am about everything. It's so yeah. embarrassing, but if you can just look past my whatever, my lazy tongue. But um, so, yeah, so what what ends up happening is, is they they combined. So you have this ideological force. Like I said, that's where we're getting into the James Lindsay stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Paulo Ferreri was an educator out of Brazil. Their organization merged with UNESCO. 
and basically became the guiding source for international education. Not mm. as effective on like the general education system. Any, any country that had its own general education system didn't have as big of an impact from UNESCO as like, you know, like Africa, where they're building these people from the ground up. Yeah. You know, they're in these other countries where they're building UNESCO schools. Those yeah. UNESCO schools are 100% curriculum. But the way it makes it into the elite academic establishment is through the elite academic establishment. They host yeah. all of their conferences. They give them platforms for their work. They provide them funding for their studies. It, a lot of this stuff is is right through there. Yeah. So anyway, they, they recognize that there was a, um, an abundance of people. And because of the work of Herbert Marcuse, Marcuse, who had like, he gets credited for the whole student revolts, you know, for recognizing that we have this, this huge crop of young and the youth are actually outweighing the old. Like we have more old, young people than we have old people. Uh, let's use these people for social change. And yeah. so that's where the Sierra Club started with the crisis committee. And they, they took that Marcusean model, like I said, as, as they were told to in the, the uh, that 1969 edition of UNESCO Courier is called Youth. And yeah. its whole MO is over this next year, we really got to figure out how to turn these college students into environmental activists. And, and, what, these, and what is their goal for turning them into environmental activists? Regulatory control. So what okay. they're trying to do now is we're, a, yeah. they're okay. trying to apply political pressure and have the next generation of experts ready. Because okay. what's the point in passing policy if you don't have an expert to carry it out? And so why they do they want regulatory control? Well, for one, they needed it. Like, yeah. I don't want to. Like, let me say, like, I, I've read a lot of the, like, oral history on the Sierra Club and their, their, their stuff is like, like I said, I feel it's insidious because it's, yeah. it's, they're lying about their purpose and they're mis, they're purposefully right. misleading people. Okay. But their intentions, uh, you know, we needed air pollution regulation. Like there's like, I've seen the footage, like yeah. this stuff was terrible back then. Lead gasoline yeah, was pretty bad. The waterways were yeah. crazy. Like yeah. things were, it was getting really bad. Yeah. Something yeah, had to happen. For sure. You know? It just happened to be the people who were making that happen also saw the ultimate solution as a rebalancing of the earth's population. And that's where yeah. the Sierra club, I mean, the Sierra club published the population bomb. Yeah. You know, the population bomb, it did what Carson's work did for environmentalism again, but this time changed the conversation of environmentalists to the population bomb as opposed to, oh, my God, we're killing all the birds. And, and so this effort to, like, create these child eco warriors, I mean, this is right out of my youth. Like, you know, yeah. you, you get you had the Captain Planet thing that came around. You had Earth Day. You had I mean, I remember that the teachers would push this stuff so much and like, uh, you know, recycling and this and that. And um just want to make sure are you okay you're good with that? i just lost it i lost one. Oh, one, okay. one one died so i'm recharging it in case the other one dies no worries perfect <laughs> um and and you know I, it's like i bought it hook line and sinker oh me too for yeah. for, for years um and that 
you know, and now I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this stuff any, in any way, shape or form, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm highly skeptical of, it, 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 of, you know, the pending climate emergency, right? It's like all of their predictions and, you know, seem to fall flat. It seems. No, that's a, it, see, these are, that's a, that's a hard argument because okay. you can't, you can't look at, something like like so like captain planet and stuff comes 20 or 10 yeah 20 years after 20 years after the events we're talking about and just for the record the earth day that we celebrate 1970 uh, like that we celebrate on on april 20th that is not earth day that is not earth day that is a that is a huge misunderstanding nobody understands that that was that was actually a teach-in that was a week-long teach-in that commandeered the name earth day which had already happened on during the solstice in march and that was also like that was so it was there were two completely different things for two completely different reasons but this one happened after that one and just stole all of that guy's everything just wrote him out of history his name's like john mcconnell check him out it's crazy they wrote him out of history dennis and and what was john mcconnell pushing versus like world peace Earth okay. Day was about world peace, uh, nuclear disarmament. Remember, this is the Cold War. Oh, the and they the and War. they and they, they made turned it, it into about an overpopulation. Yeah, no, it was environmentalism, but it was a, it wasn't like a overpopulation environmentalism. Uh, it wasn't like just for context. 420, 1970 is the centennial of Lenin. So, okay. so there was this huge socialist element, like very commoner and all of the people out of the Sierra club at that time were devout socialists. Right. And there was yep. a social economical upheaval that they were trying to launch. They were basically trying to commandeer the civil rights movement at the end and in trying to commandeer the civil rights movement at the end, wanted to steer everyone into environmentalism. And that's, that's basically the whole plan. And the environmentalism is really just an all-encompassing framework to for them to impose social change through communism. It's ultimately the goal for that sector. John McConnell's not in that area. John McConnell was just, he developed his idea for Earth. They both were developed, both ideas were developed at UNESCO meetings. John McConnell's was at an earlier meeting and it was actually called Earth Day. Yeah. Gaylord Nelson's was not called Earth Day until like five weeks before the event. Okay. And John McConnell didn't have any legal teams or anything like that, or didn't even have it in his nature to send a cease and desist to these monsters who Dennis Hayes is like a Harvard school, doesn't give a fuck about you. I'm about my purpose. They're backed by the union auto workers. So the UAW paid for Earth Day. Like that's like. The entire thing is like a big union overthrow and a big FU to Nixon. That's what that was. Who, by the way, was the most environmental president that we've had. Like Carter gets all the credit for putting, you know, uh, the solar panels on the White House. But pretty much every major bill was started by, you know, Nixon was like, he really was trying to prove to people that he cares about the environment because all these commies are trying to make it look like he doesn't care about the environment. (laughs) It's like it was this whole back and forth. And like I said, it, Earth Day just had better branding. So they yeah. took Earth Day um, and they tried to establish it like, oh, well, that was the original Arbor Day. It's like, go fuck yourself. Like everybody <laughs> knows. And, and like you can even see it in their writings. They kind of like 
like I said, the oral histories are great on the Sierra Club. You should, if anybody's interested, go check it out. You can read the conversation. You need to do a video on the Sierra Club, I feel like. The videos are so hard to make, dude. Like, I want to do a video on all this. But like, even this conversation, like, who's going to watch to this point? It's like, it's so hard to get people interested in this stuff. It's like, I wish I could do videos on it. But it's like, by the time I'm done with the video, it's like, I can't. It's it's like it's like getting it's like getting kicked right in uh, all you know, of your the, feelings you, you know, when you release a video. The reward no doesn't come right away. Oh, geez. necessarily. Yeah, the punishment <laughs> does. It's like oh. you you know you put like I don't know I can't even tell people like every, I'm not good at tech. Like all yeah. of the stuff I'm doing is way harder for me than it is for most people. I will tell and you, I, my my wife was watching your videos with me yesterday for the first time, and she's like, "Wow, he's really good at this." He, <laughs> yeah, she was she was really impressed. Um, well, so. <laughs> I work really hard on it, and I, I hope they come across. But I think so. That's why I'm switching now to like a. I'm gonna try like infographics. Yeah. kind of like info docs and yeah. i'm doing it to where like they're a single image but mm -hmm. within that image you can there's no links you can zoom in and you can read all of the documents for yourself if you want have and you ever have you ever seen alt shift x mm -mm. he does you should check this out okay. he does this and i you um he does these uh uh recaps for like game of thrones and house of dragons okay and i just think you you the, he uses this sort of zooming in he just does it to create these videos yeah it's like mosaics of all the stuff that he's sharing see that's the kind of idea that i'm going for. yeah it and, reminded and me i'm of gonna that. do explainers of those but i also i want it i want it to exist without the video like because i want you to be able to look at it and you can tell what's going on with yep. it. you can spend two minutes or two hours you can read every document on this or you can just take the fine notes and follow it to the end and kind of get it check, or you can watch out. the there's video very, and i'll break it down there's a specific application and i don't know what the name of it is that alt chef x uses that you can use where it's yeah you can go from any level of granularity and you can zoom your video in and out and i think it would be and i I imagine you can share it as a presentation that has all the artifacts in it, like you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, and I'm 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 pretty good with like the back end. I'm finally I'm finally getting I'm finally getting to a point of proficiency. Like yeah. it'll take it's but it's taken. I mean, we're two years into this, and I'm just now kind of getting proficient. But yeah. I'll tell mm -hmm. you, the fact like the stuff is there. Like I've got all of the information and all the files and all the receipts. I've got all the. I'm so anxious to get into this conversation because so many people are having it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to gear us back a little bit yeah, towards, towards my, the, my agenda here. Um, uh, Cause I, I've got, I've got to stop in about 20 to 30, we'll say like 30 minutes from now. I don't know um, how much longer my head headphone will hold up, but if it does break, I'll just switch over. You'll to just the switch to the other headphones. one. <laughs> yeah, I got other headphones. So I, and I'm so because you you made this perfect bridge with your last comment about how it's communism, right? And and because that, that's that's what I've seen and why aspects of it are. Yeah, aspect. I mean, it's it's murky, right? It's like well, there's 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 multiple groups, you know. Yeah. So you have like the Sierra Clubs and the people right. like that who have been infiltrated to a great extent by ideologies and those yes. ideologies it used to be for a, a period it was eugenics yep. for a period it's been malthusianism yep. and that 
period seems to have now shifted to this weird social justice era view that is terrifying. And you, a, so, and you can track, and I, I am right there with you. I think the social justice, um, trans movement, like all of this sort of stuff going on right now is like terrifying beyond what i thought i would observe in my lifetime and i was yeah. a cynical individual <laughs> yeah you know for a long time you feel like you can track track in your research the lineage from these like 1970s environmental movements um and social movements through present day social justice warrior and antifa mm -hmm. shit like that yeah, not as well on the like the philosophy side. Like like Lindsay yeah. goes into a lot of like breaking down the core of their yeah. ideas. I'm good at the who's wins, what's and where's. Yeah. You know? And from that, sometimes I can say a lot. You yep. know, but Lindsay seems to kind of sometimes read someone and be able to, you know, intuit where this like he knows that roadmap. I've tried to collaborate with him. Yeah. But I don't think he's interested in my work, but like I feel like give it if time had, yeah maybe you know yeah. who knows uh but there's a it's not for everybody so and like you said you have to kind of have an interest in this stuff yeah and uh he's he's probably doing he's got his own process you know that guy was he was here way be, he turned my lights on to a great yeah. extent so i got yeah, nothing yeah. i got nothing but respect for that guy you know he's yeah he's, he's up there but what i can what i can trace is the people and the places and and when and the and like I said, some of that I can I can intuit why. And when we get into like the Ted Turner era, is when you see the social justice movement actually emerge. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially it's a byproduct of having two things. One solved all the major problems by then. That mm. was the biggest one. Because really? those social okay. yeah, the social justice problems existed in 19 like you can go back and you can read like barry commoner who is well known as like the father of ecology like one of the yeah. like founding like i said devout marxist not just a socialist like a devout marxist socialist type guy unapologetic also a member of the club of rome which adds like like i said people think oh this is a big mystique and whatnot but he was leading intellectual he was bringing this stuff up at the conferences but it was on the bottom of a list of like, okay, buddy, well, the water's all poison, the air is poison, the planet's overpopulated, we'll get to your grievances when we're ready. Mm -hmm. And by 1987, they had introduced some of the most, like, I mean, just, just, an, it, it's like if it were a pop album, it would be Michael Jackson Thriller. Like, every song was a hit. You know, like everything the EPA did was a hit. Like they were yeah, knocking they, it out of the They park. did good work. They improved their metrics and it made a difference. A, a tangible, I mean, they, they're, yeah. they're like, oh, getting CFCs out of this, getting this. And it's like they're picking things down as they could. And they're going down the list. And then finally, when you get to the end of the list, they've got all these agendas in place. And that's when the, you know, before... The Cold There's War this entire over, effective apparatus that's just not going to disappear. <laughs> Well, see, yeah, and and that's the okay. So that's the second that's the second aspect of it is that that cultural apparatus shifted, so yeah. the Cold War ended. So once yeah. the Cold War was over, um, bringing up socioeconomic justice and changes in the environmental discussion no longer automatically made you a threat as a communist because Americans had defeated communism. 
you know, Gorbachev, by the way, also a member of the Club of Rome. Um, just to, with bring the with, pizza. What's that? Does he bring the pizza? <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, he was just found naked on the streets of like DC trying to go get pizza drunk one Gorbachev. Day, but... Oh yeah. Yeah. Look oh, I didn't know about that. That's... Oh yeah. He did a commercial for pizza Hut because of it. Well, there was, there was a lot of like Ted Turner was a really important person for bridging the gap and kind of combining the societies mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, and when the, when the cold war finally ended, they could kind of reintroduce these ideas and that that's where they started pushing it through. And it kind of got introduced through what they call social development goals. And that's SDGs. Yeah. And that, that was developed. I, I sent you some information about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you should check that out because it's super informative. It really fills in the blank of how we got from 1987 to 1992 are probably the most important five-year span of our modern age. Really? And so yeah. what, what, what happens in those five years? That's where our, Global warming becomes an agenda. Okay. Um, that's where population control stops being an agenda. So they like, like women's empowerment comes out of those years. Yeah. So before that, you have the decade of women. So that ended in 1985. And that's where the concept of women empowerment actually came from, is that they like, that's where they started mainstreaming that terminology. Mm-hmm. And I mean that, like, that's not a, that's not conjecture. You can go back and yeah. sit through the meetings and hear them talking about it. It's, Basically, they had to because China's one child policy had created a pile of dead babies. Yeah. Like, a, like three. So I don't know how many tens of millions. Were, we'll guess the first. Yeah. yeah. And that's when Reagan denounced family planning completely. And he cut all funding for for the United Nations Fund for Population Activities. OK. And Reagan was like, no. And that's where the contention between deregulation and the Reagan you know, Reagan was coming at, he was like, all right, now you're regulating us to death. We have to put the brakes on the regulation a little bit. And he tried to do that. And then they responded to Reagan and they won a really big decision in 1984 that it's called Chevron deference. And that essentially makes expert agencies um, the authority over the Supreme Court in decisions of their own expertise. So the Supreme Court can't weigh in on what the EPA's expert thinks because the the Supreme Court lacks the expertise to weigh in. So that's what the Supreme Court do something about that recently. There, it's it's in the progress. So this is okay. we're in the end stages of this game. That's why I I'm see. saying this is the most important time in our like this five year period. So yeah. from 1980 with Chevron deference, that gave them the ability to conceive of the social development goals. Because now they have the authority to introduce these things through expert mechanisms. So now they have the delivery. This is the system. expansion of the expert class with the power that came with it, because now so, that they're high on their horses of legal authority. And this is also where the narrative shifts. So that's where the, the, the shift to global warming over population overpopulation kicks in, because overpopulation was a hot button issue with abortion because of the one child policy. Right. And. And you then know, it became you, it then it became unpopular because we see how devastating that is in China. So that's not sellable anymore. And no, it, it family, loses its family luster. planning dropped off. The numbers in America went just they we just it completely fell off. And then we actually yeah. the the pro goal achieved. You know, the pro life people started really making headway like until I want to say like nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety, somewhere in the nineteen ninety till nineteen ninety four. 
um, women were not even informed that there could be negative side effects. Yeah, there was no, there was no, you just, you thought that this, like, and I've read some of the material, there's like, they're basically sterilization, the only side effect is not having children. You know, yeah. uh, abortion, the only side effect is <laughs> a better life. You it's know? like transitioning to male and female these days. <laughs> it, it's very much like that. And these are actually the very interconnected world we're, yeah. we're dealing with. But, but yeah, so this is the transitory period. And the best book on this is Maurice Strong's uh, Where on Earth Are We Going? And he talks about, because he was in charge of, the, of all of this. Like he not only worked for Ted Turner's organization, uh, Better World Society, um, he was the president, the first president of that. He was also the head of the, the World Economic Forum, which became a thing in 1987. That's the same year they changed their name. Mm -hmm. So 1987 is where everything happened. That's where Black Monday happens. That's where the, so the financial collapse happens that then triggers all of these different changes that are going to start coming down the pipeline. That's when uh, Robert Redford gets the greenhouse glasnost um, meeting together where the Soviets and American scientists meet about global warming. And this is going to be the coming together that stops. Uh, and, and atomic energy was going to be a, a huge part of that solution. And like you we're going to turn this conflict into a, a positive. I mean, do you think people are, or the, 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 the elite leaderships, you know, segment that we're talking about are earnest about global warming in terms of like their actual fears or is it that they just want regulatory control and want it's, to introduce carbon credits and control markets? It's a, it's a mixture of both. Okay. There's, um, I think the biggest thing that we have is a, an issue with um, compartmentalization, mm -hmm. you know, just as an example, um, I was reading some contemporary work from the United Nations, like pop, like population people. And then I was also reading it from the United Nations women people and then from the environmental, just to kind of touch base and see what's, see where that's kind of stuff went. And a lot of them have, like, I think one of the, like the director of one of these agencies was like, we need something to address population. Like she doesn't even understand because her own bylaws by this point are so convoluted. Like I said, mm -hmm you need a decoder ring to even read this stuff and understand it. The people who are running the organizations don't even understand that. Yeah. You have a whole department that is addressing population goofball. Like you didn't know that, like you're the director of this. Like, yeah, here, let's go back. It happened in 1983 at this meeting, you got this passed. And then that was ratified by the general assembly the next year. Yeah. You didn't know that yeah, you have the authority. It's a whole department. Steve runs it. You know, you, they don't even know what they're the, the hand can't, doesn't talk to the foot yeah you know and the people who do know understand that even though like like you can't sell a hundred year consequence to someone yeah. that's why like in my fifth episode people when i don't know i kind of like left some breadcrumbs but ted turner continuously says 10 years away like ted yeah. turner continually so in 1980 fucking armageddon's 10 years away 1990 yeah. 10 years away 2000 10 years away 2010 we're about 10 years out aoc is fantastic about that one too yeah it's always it's beautiful yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 he knows but at the same time he also knows that you won't respond unless he says this so yeah. you have to you have the, to have the urgency one of the greatest salesmen of all time so <laughs> oh ted turner yeah and what a life that guy is one of the most interesting people how he doesn't have a bio doc i yeah. don't know it's talk about wow what a maniac i love maniac. that maniac oh uh, 
re- learning about his life was an adventure. Yeah. America's Cup captain. Like, what? <laughs> oh, he was a legend before he even started Network News. I mean, just a <laughs> crazy dude. Just crazy. And, like, call it, shoot from the hip. Call it like he sees it. Like, <laughs> One one of my favorite, I I don't know if it's real or not, but I heard it one time there was an interaction between Ted Turner and Rupert Murdoch where Ted Turner goes to Rupert and says, you, sir, are a low-down, dirty snake. When Rupert Rupert replies, yes, but you could walk under me wearing a top hat. (laughs) Yeah, they had a a rivalry. Yeah, it's, you know, Uh, let's see. Okay, we've got we got like 15 20 minutes left here. Right. Um I, okay. I, I I can talk about this stuff all day. Oh, like, no, I it's would, awesome. Would, it's, it's I would it's, wear a shirt around that said ask me about Malthusianism if I could find <laughs> one, you know. I want I love to I'm the you're the only person I can talk to this stuff about. <laughs> my wife is tired of hearing it. I know my wife won't. Yeah, my wife won't deal with me over this shit either. I say uh, Malthusianism but, and she's like, mm uh, That's enough. <laughs> Not yeah. at this house. No, this 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 entire podcast is going to be my outlet for like bringing people in to discuss all these kind of things that like I only I'm not like to talk about anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, and it's I actually think that you can you know because I've gotten so much out of podcasts and discussions sure. between people. It's not so, and, and what I realize is it's not so much listening to somebody give a lecture on something but two people having a discussion a natural free-flowing discussion about a topic where i learn the most from right it, yeah. it, it, it's, and so i think that there's and i i think that podcasting and having these sort of discussions you know we're really only 10 years if that into these things existing at all um yeah. and I've gotten so much out of it and I feel like I want to be part of that conversation, the, these ongoing conversations that have it happen and want to play a part in both sharing my ideas while facilitating these conversations. Cause I'm not, I rabbit hole some stuff, but nothing like you do, nothing like Alex does. Um, but oh, I, Alex is a force of nature. Yeah. I'm not even the same. Like we're not even the same. You, He's you, just, you're in the same order of magnitude. Okay. I just, just, I, just I have humble. an obsessive. I have no. I have an obsessive fixation thing. Like I, I fixate on things and I obsess on certain things and I, I channel that into research. But yeah, like I said, he's like that guy's got a gift. Like he is just like, I've tried to function. I can't, my brain can't even function on the same level as him. Like, it's like heavy lifting every day of the week. I can't do it. I can't, I just don't have it. You're a little more shy than he is. (laughs) Yeah. You know, in in terms of like, you're more humble than he is also. So (laughs) I don't know about that. I think he's a super man. Yeah. I can't say enough nice things about him. He's fantastic. Okay. So what I want, you, you've done all of this research. You've 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 kind of described how the world has gone through a journey where we we start with this like Malthusian population control through propaganda, environmentalism, ending up in our modern day age of social justice and you know climate change being these sort of uh, what I would call um, uh, uh, politics of existential threats where yeah. you know where it's really a phrase that i think 
encapsulates how these how you're able to take something that is of the utmost importance affects the most people and use it as a cudgel to hammer other people into like some sort of compliance um to, yeah. to get your way that that's you know that that's my mental framing on it when i when i when i contemplate these sort of things you're not off yeah i mean that's pretty dead on and that's there's actually you know you can you can read the books of them talking about the the concept of crisis and why it's so important and climate and, change is, yeah. is it's purposefully focus group selected turn of phrase that was and, selected by a focus group to, and, because and it's become, such a good catch-all these things have become scientifically engineered in such a way where we, we gerrymander these issues to, 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 to their utmost effect on a population and what mm -hmm. the, to achieve the outcomes that the planners want. So with that big framing set, what do you suggest to people who are listening to this and what you can do with this knowledge like and i don't even mean fight back in an existential like protective sort of way i just mean guard your how do you guard your own mind how do you make good choices for yourself and your family and how do you approach the, uh becoming more knowledgeable and uh maybe having a little bit of influence on the people around you to raise some awareness i don't know <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to find that. Yeah. Honestly, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm, that's my whole purpose right now is trying to figure out what to do with this information. Like, it's like, okay, you found it. You're not crazy. You, you're not crazy. Like everyone wants to look at you like, oh, well that doesn't connect with my view of reality. Well, your fucking view is wrong and I have the paperwork to prove, it. you know, it's not, <laughs> I don't talk about a lot of things with certainty, but I can only read a hundred years of history over and over again so many times before i'm pretty sure you didn't read it you know you didn't read the book you know so don't tell me what's in it you know that's how i kind of feel about this subject did you do the homework no okay no yeah i haven't i haven't heard anybody talk like intelligently and i think the one thing that if i can express anything that i i'm trying to do that i haven't figured out that i'm really searching for an answer for that i hope someone else figures out is how to how to get this information out effectively without appealing to the lowest common denominator of our senses and of our being of making it some kind of a rivalry situation. We and have I, to by the abandon way, I, the anti I, and pro I, mindset. It I want to jump go. in and say that that's one of the things I respect about you the most is that you are not sensational about these things in any particular way. Like you try to bring a very even keeled mindset to this and keep the rhetoric and the hyperbole to a minimum, which I for one can fall victim to much more dramatically uh, than, than you do. So I, I, I really like that. Thank you, man. I mean, it's, it's an applied effort. I, I mean, I'm definitely, I, you know, yeah, I definitely have reactions and knee jerks and stuff like that. And I'm not always my best self and things like that. But when I actually publish my work, I try to really, I'm hypercritical and hyperanalytical. And I try to make sure that the arguments I'm making are, you know, more than anything, I'm not really trying to even make an argument. I'm just trying to show you what's happening. And I'm trying to do that without a lens, without my own spin. That's why I can't collaborate with anyone. I've tried to collaborate with like three or four people. I tried to hire in an animator to help me. Like yeah. I've tried to hire in people to help me get these videos out. I can't do it. I can't do it because 
everyone has their spin they want to put on this stuff. Everyone hears eugenics. And then when you get the, when you get the video back, it's like got all this, like, it's like, look, that's no, that's not what we're doing here. We are explorers. We are not here to diagnose who's right and wrong or to mm. impose our view on the world. We're trying to add clarity to other people's views. We're time travelers. We're showing people a window into time. That's my entire outlook is just a clear window. And I think that's what's lacking. And hopefully at some point it does catch on because I'm sick of it. It's like every person that I try to actually have an open, direct conversation with, like, you know, the, the people who are the world, it's supposed to be world leading scholars on this, on these subjects are the most dishonest people. And I can see right through them, you know, and it makes me sick because I don't know how to, how to enter that conversation appropriately. And I also don't know how to engage with that type of personality. And on the other side of that, all of the opposition seems ridiculously radical. You know, it's gone from like, oh, well, yeah, oil is the best thing to where it's like, there's people that are like anti, they will deliberately pollute a lake out of resentment for an enemy. Oh, the God. fuck is wrong with you? You know, yeah. like if you're doing like if you have like you've, you've gone too far and like they're like, yeah, climate change is overblown, but it is real. Like we do change our climates. Yeah, Only I a mean, fool would actually deny that no one actually denies climate change. But people have been driven to the point of rejecting like, no, carbon does nothing. It's like, well, tell that to the people in the biosphere who, you know, had an overflow of carbon in their environment and went brain dead because of it you know, until they pumped oxygen in. Otherwise, the experiment was going to fail. Mm. You know, it has an effect on closed systems. You can't just keep introducing. And yes, it is overblown because you would have to burn all of the fossil fuel yeah. at once. All of, and it's all this radical stuff. But you can't have the conversation always be on absolutes. That's yeah. why the, the pro and the anti shit has just got to go. I can't. I got no time for any of that. It's like, I'm not on your side. I'm here to find out what happened with you and if i'm missing anything history is a big place please fill me in and then you know in the meantime that's what i'm when i when i like comment on somebody's stuff or say like hey that's not exactly what happened that's that's not me being like a troll that's i'm i'm, I'm I, I really care about what happened and i'd like some clarity in this conversation so i'm trying to offer it and i respect it when other people do the same for me well jason i i had another section planned but i really like the idea of ending it with ending it there because okay. i uh yeah thank you very much for your time this is uh this has been a a real pleasure of a conversation and i'm glad we got to do this and uh we're gonna do this again because anytime man and, yeah. and it doesn't have to be recorded like i said i'm all i do is read like that's that's like that's where that's my life right now is i well, just read i spend time with my wife and i feed my cats and i read and that's i, I love it i live a very happy life but it's good to talk yeah <laughs> and and you know i know you don't want to uh a, you, you know collaboration has maybe not um worked out for you so well with with other engagements but if there's anything that you just want to talk about and we can use this to create some content and i can you know i i can explore some questions with you and whatnot i you know i, I think that that could work you can phone me anytime. Like I said, like it doesn't have, it can be on here, off here. I, I don't mind. We can have the conversations publicly or privately. Uh, it's, it's fun to talk, man. And you're a cool dude. I really appreciate you um, 
not only just having this conversation, but, you know, behind the scenes, like you've been really helpful on critiquing my work and, and helping me through the process of, you know, sanity checks and stuff like that. I, I, I really value you and I, I really appreciate your presence. In the room. I, I appreciate that. And I think you just need us to keep making the con content and, and, and grinding through it and developing Thanks, your voice um, because, you know, it, you've only been doing this year and the idea that just because what you're doing hasn't con caught up yet is no indication that it won't catch on. Yeah, you're always um, one cosign away. You're you know, just but exactly my hard to you're, cosign. You're just you're, you're just one Twitter share away. Yeah, you know, you from, never know from it blowing up. You know, and uh, and I mean, what I've been telling you, you've already done this so much, and what I've been you know hammering myself in my own head is like just start making content, right? Just yeah. keep doing it and refining it. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, what, what do they say in the crypto world? And we're, wag me, we're all going to make it. <laughs> I don't know what that means, Yeah, I, I, but I support you. Cool. Hey, Jason, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for the hey, conversation. You. Appreciate you. And we'll chat again soon. Yeah. Cheers. Talk to you later.